0: Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Ned Baker, and I'm going to give you the great honor of being my horse.
1: And I'm the bold renegade who carves a sea with her blade, a sea that stands for Caroline.
0: Nice. Was that the... Like old TV it's show like the 1950s um, oh, awesome. TV
1: show theme. Yeah, yeah. Is that stands for Zorro? Uh,
0: so the way that this podcast works is that, that-
1: I try to sing as frequently <laughs> and badly as possible.
0: Um, that's, that's part of it. Uh, there's a lot of things <laughs> that go out of this podcast regularly, but one thing you can always count on is that Caroline and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. We have just marked our one-year anniversary, our one-year podcast anniversary, with the Roll Calling Awards, or as our listener Bucko suggested, the Laurie Awards—kind of a Laurie. Uh, oh my God, what's Laurie's? Theodore Lawrence the Third. Yes. Oh, it's tricky yeah. Because it's, yeah. it's his last name, Laurie Lawrence slash Laurie Strode. The Laurie Awards. I like though. I like that idea. I love it. Okay, mm-hmm. the Laurie Awards retroactively—that's what they were. Uh, very fun episode. And today we are beginning a new series. I'm back in the hosting chair for the first time since Westworld, which was literally like months ago. That was early December, and it is now early May.
1: I'm just now realizing we're... It's like you own, you're you taking a bridge of Anthony Hopkins in mysterious mentor roles. <laughs> ah,
0: I see. There is there's, There are links here. There's lots of links which we can get into uh, with the movie we're discussing today. But before we discuss that, I'm very excited to say that we have a friend joining us today, and I would like to welcome to the show, John Harrison. Hello. Welcome, John.
2: Thank you. Thank you both for having me here. I am a longtime listener. And a long time desiring to be on this podcast, so you have made my dream come true. I feel Aww. like a, I feel like a wish has been fulfilled.
0: Oh buddy, that's
2: what we aim for.
0: So John is uh, John is uh, one of our college friends. John can be filed in with the category of people whom Caroline directed mm-hmm. in college in Barefoot in the Park. Is that Nailed right? It. You're so correct. So good that show. I'm the only one who wasn't involved in it of the 3 of us so I can just say great production of very
1: it was really fun to do.
0: Yeah, it was fantastic. I have such
1: fond memories of that.
0: Yeah, I I laughed extensively.
2: That was a formative experience for me, Caroline, because Was I, it? It was because it was the first time I felt I had been trusted to to lead a like a straight play mm-hmm. versus doing musical theater in any form. And John has a beautiful voice. So, yeah. <laughs> No. Oh, well, so he's just been hiding it. behind that for years and years prior to doing
0: <laughs> Fairfoot I, Park.
2: I definitely have, and there's also a, a non-zero chance that I will break out into at the beginning from Anastasia at some point during this. Hell time. yeah. Ooh man. But it it was because it was the first time I felt I really got to express myself. And I was very Aww. grateful for that opportunity. That's so
1: nice. Yeah. Uh, I'm so, so glad you were my Paul.
0: That I could not have pulled out, the name of the character. So. <laughs> very good. Um, But we're super excited to have John with us today. Uh, I thought of you, John, for this inaugural episode of our next series because of our shared history with today's film. So for those of you who haven't listened to the Laurie Awards yet, I am very pleased to announce that our subject for the next five episodes, our next role-calling series, will be Antonio Banderas. And today, we will be covering The Mask of Zorro. Um, And we did just want to follow up on the clues that we gave two episodes ago, where I said, this is an actor who was in Shrek 2. As soon as that was out of my mouth, I was like, oh, that was maybe not a great hint. I should have said the Shrek franchise mm-hmm. because not that many people were added for Shrek 2. You know, like I would have just said Shrek 1 unless it was either like Antonio Banderas or Rupert, or Rupert Everett. Prince
1: Charming was, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: or you know, one of those other. But um, Caroline, what was your hint?
1: So we had we had said that he was in, which I didn't know until I happened to come across this, but that he was in a direct-to-video <laughs> Um, like crime rom-com with Meg Ryan, which is a movie called, where did I have it, Uh, My Mom's New Boyfriend, right. that the trailer looks, let me say, god-awful, so I don't <laughs> imagine we'll be covering it as part of this series.
0: No, that probably won't come up. And we both alluded to Antonio Banderas' movies that we hated. What was yours?
1: Mine was this 2018 movie called Life Itself that is made by the guy that made This Is Us, which is a show I love, but is a truly bizarre and terrible movie although i will say like antonio banderas is low-key fantastic in it and mm-hmm. it actually really made me appreciate him as an actor so i have I, I can't begrudge that element of life itself but again not one i would recommend
0: uh, mine was a uh, haywire which is a gina carano vehicle maybe the first Steven gina carano soderberg film with an absolutely stellar cast i mean you've got antonio banderas ewan Channing Tatum, yeah. Bill Paxton, yeah, Yun. Yeah, Michael Michael Fassbender, Matthew Kasavitz for my <laughs> Matthew Kasavitz heads out there, um, but uh, terrib- uh just like really underwhelming. I think in uh, in relation, um, so we will not be covering either of those films. But the guy has had an awesome career. Uh, it has not been easy to uh, to narrow down what movies mm-hmm. we've done. I think it's okay for us to part the curtain and it admit like maybe we are not 100% locked in on what movies we'll do yet we're still some some deciding to some tough decisions to make but yeah uh he's just someone that i am extremely fond of uh so john i want to come to you first what when you think of antonio banderas what comes to mind for me it was yeah. that it was a very specific
2: period in my life so this was I think, like, 97 through early 2000s, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, I, I just felt like there were there were Latin celebrities that I was suddenly becoming far more aware of. Like, that's when Enrique, Enrique Iglesias became really mm-hmm. popular. Aside from from this movie... Oh, actually, I'm just thinking about more artists. I'm thinking about Ricky Martin. I remember Ricky Martin literally, like, took over the world.
1: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She bang, she bang.
2: <laughs> Which was, you know, unfo- <laughs> it's unfortunate how that all wound up, how the media became so enraptured with his sexuality. But I thought it was a different approach to what it is to be like not just a romantic male, but to be the object of lust, you know, someone to be lusting after, just as as Catherine Zeta Jones says so
0: eloquently in the movie. Wow. With and, with every fiber of her body <laughs> multiple
2: multiple times. <laughs> truly quivering. Um and I i I thought there was just as somebody who was ra- like born and raised on romantic comedies because I had a sister two and a half years older than me, like so I watched everything mm-hmm. there was always the 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 male character like the interest of our protagonist to to emulate right to idolize and I always thought that Antonio Banderas, especially in this movie, does such a fantastic job of having that flirtatiousness, but not in a way that is leaning into so many of like sort of the toxic masculine traits that we're familiar with like Mm -hmm. true lies is a great example of i was also raised on true lies and i don't think i ever really came to terms with how problematic that movie was because my family just loved it so much well it's got that great horse and motorcycle chase (laughs) if you focus (laughs) on that (laughs) exactly see emulate the horse if nothing else sure sure sure
1: It it is interesting how much Antonio, I've been just like watching a lot of interviews with him to prep for this. And so many of them really do play up like, ooh, come and like teach us, teach us how to tango because you're so sexy or like there is this, there is this like real selling of him as a romantic leading man, even in like a talk show appearance or something like that's so much of his celebrity persona.
2: Which I I think also lends itself to a little bit of exoticism, which is unsurprising, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't take away sort of the what the foundational elements of it.
0: This is I think one of our like astounding modern charming actors
2: and he n- nails that line where he where, where it's like charm what what is mm-hmm. charm where yeah. it's like I I know on, that you are the most charming person i have met.
0: <laughs> but also i i believe you. <laughs> Yeah, well, he goes on a whole journey in this movie as he slowly builds his costume and slowly shaves away his different uh, the different layers of his facial hair. And um, then applies fake facial hair afterwards. Yes, yes, in a <laughs> mystifying moment, but yeah. Um, Caroline, what are your initial Antonio Banderas associations?
1: Well, I think actually like a lot of the people you've chosen for this series, he's mm-hmm. obviously something someone that I like, have known all my life, right? Like he's a very... He was a very big presence in the 90s when we were growing up. But I think he is, to some extent, someone that I never paid a huge amount of, like, close attention to. Like, Mm -hmm. I think I kind of, like, took him – kind of, like, took him as a given. Like, the same way I did with Jamie Lee Curtis, who's kind of, like, the same – they're, like, born around the same time. They're of the same generation. And they're kind of, like, they've always been around, but I never really – I don't know, paid them much specific notice. For me, I would say that actually started to change within the past – Like probably after I saw like Life Itself in 2018, I think that's like Mm. a really interesting, dramatic performance that I now know he gave a lot of earlier in his career. But I think if you were a kid in the 90s, you were much more likely to know him as Zorro or Puss in Boots or whatever. Um, But it was so it was that performance in Life Itself and then especially the 2019 film Pain and Glory, which got him his first Oscar nomination. I think it's just like a phenomenal performance. And that was where I like really started to like actually pay attention to Antonio Banderas as like a serious actor. And so I'm like super excited that you picked him for this series because this is giving me an excuse to now like finally dig deeper and fill in all those like gaps I have in
0: his resume. Similarly for me, uh, I feel like 90s kids, we were introduced to him as this sort of like blockbuster star, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, doing... Uh, as we said, sort of like sexy or like actiony, but kind of, kind of not the not the deepest, um, deepest dramatic work. I think yeah. we can see. I, I I will certainly try to make a case today that he does exemplary acting work in that genre, um, or he can do exemplary acting work in that genre. But um, but I am excited for the series because I think we're going to get to go to some very cool places in his career. Um, so. We started this with the meet Meg, uh, segment five episodes ago. Um, but mm-hmm. we we wanted to sort of continue with our first Antonio episode to do a little meet Antonio section. Maybe it should. Is there an, a, like an alliterative introducing? I was Antonio? just thinking
1: that, or is there something in Spanish? Oh yeah, because he's our first. This is this is like a real first for roll calling our first international star, right? Like our first person that's based oh, somewhere wow. other than America, and that was you know grew up speaking a different language
2: that's true that that's that, true you, you have covered a lot of brits though wow it might yeah. be a Podcast. little bit of a bias of mine <laughs> true, as we do, well, yeah
0: but uh,
1: you're right internet yeah i guess what i'm saying more is is grew up not speaking english less than yes. from a different country yes
0: which Our first- that whole thing is so
2: interesting how he just bluffed his way through an entire script at one point not knowing how to speak english or not understanding it and phonetically working his way through it
0: yeah, what? pretty, pretty crazy. For those of you who don't know, uh, because I actually feel like there may be some ambiguity around this. Uh, Antonio Banderas is a Spanish actor. He was born in Malaga, in Spain, in 1960. Um, his birth name is Jose Antonio Dominguez Bandera. and uh, yeah, basically, like his dad was a civil guard, his mom was a schoolteacher, and he was interested as a child in being a professional football player, um, which is another very cool glamorous sexy career uh he until he broke his foot at age 15 and had to settle for being a movie star um uh oh, although that so didn't hard. obviously didn't happen initially he he started uh working in theater he studied at the school of dramatic arts in malaga and he landed a spot with the spanish national theater which is where he first caught the attention of uh pedro almodovar the spanish director who he would then proceed to work with five times during his 20s so and it works out nicely because he was born, like, right in 1960. So the 80s are Antonio Banderas's 20s. Um, that's when he starts uh, doing acting work. That is when he has his first uh, feature, which was uh, 1982's Labyrinth of Passion with Almodovar. And after that, he did Matador, uh, Law of Desire, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. Um so those are not his last collaborations with Almodóvar, but those are those are 5 that happened in that decade and sort of define that early chapter of his career. Interestingly, I think that for a lot of American audiences, it is finding out about these kind of like provocative, sexy, twisted movies that kind of comes later. You know, you first know him as being like Zorro and then you're like, "Oh, he played this sort of like pathological liar like tortured closeted homosexual rapist figure in this like Spanish drama in the 80s. Oh, I didn't know about all that. Um but yeah, so in the 90s is when he does make that switch to Hollywood. Uh he basically had received enough international attention doing the Almodóvar films that he does a bunch of American films. Um his uh were you alluding to Mambo Kings, John? The the cuz that's that's what we have here I, in this bio is. I believe his so, lines yeah. Yeah, that was his English language debut, 1982, uh playing a Cuban trumpeter and uh yeah, learning lines phonetically because his grasp of English was pretty tenuous at the time, apparently. Um so he quickly earned more roles in movies like Philadelphia, Interview with the Vampire, Desperado, and Evita. Those are kind of some of the big titles of the 90s. And Caroline, you had a you had a connection on Philadelphia.
1: Oh, I just thought it was funny that he plays tom hanks's like boyfriend or partner in philadelphia and i was like that's our connection right through our meg ryan (laughs) if one connection is like people that are mentored by anthony hopkins our other connection is people who have on-screen romance tom hanks right
0: great um in his personal life he in his 20s he had married a woman in spain named Analeza, uh but they divorced around the like mid 90s and he starts dating melanie griffith in 1995 after they meet while shooting a rom-com called too much Melanie Griffith, that, that is a person that I could benefit from a role-calling series. I don't mm. really have a sense of her.
1: There's a lot. There's a lot? Let me tell you. Yeah. Oh, yeah? Very fascinating public uh, life she's led.
0: Any tidbits for now? Or does that does oh. it really take us too <laughs> off, too far off?
1: So she, similar to Jamie Lee Curtis, she's the daughter, she's uh, Tippy Hedren's daughter. So she has that right. whole legacy of like being a celebrity's kid, just like lots of troubled personal life. And then also like really credible like performances and movies like working girl and stuff a lot of public marriages um she's dakota johnson's mom oh. so she's this was like that multi-generational hollywood leading lady thing wow. going on with
0: her dakota johnson is a third generation Hollywood yeah. person i didn't know that released Um, but so, yes, so, uh, Antonio Medeiros and Melanie Griffith, uh, start dating in 95, they get married in 1996, they have a daughter later that year, uh, so they definitely got that whole celebrity power couple, and these are the things that lead up to 1998, when he hits the movie that we're starting with right in the middle of his career, because for me, it is so, so foundational to my love of Antonio Medeiros, The Mask of Zorro which comes out in the summer of 1998. So he had already done Desperado with Robert Rodriguez, and I believe that Robert Rodriguez was attached to direct Zorro Mm -hmm. and sort of pitched more of a violent, like, hard R version, just sort of a Robert Rodriguez-y Zorro. Um, He ends up stepping away from that project before being replaced by Martin Campbell, who was the GoldenEye director. Um, But Antonio Banderas, thankfully. Oh, yeah, that movie movie slaps.
2: Um, Absolutely, and I think it sets up so well the transition from from GoldenEye to this movie. It's like, okay, I can see the parts that you pulled out of it that you thought, okay, how do I have these relationships? How do the characters work together? And then mm-hmm. how can I improve upon it and add yeah, horses? Yeah, if, yeah <laughs> yes. yes. If you're a Bond
0: fan, I think a lot of people would say, would probably say about GoldenEye the same things that I'm going to try to say today about how <laughs> this is not just a passively good action movie, but a masterful action movie. Um, but so fortunately, one of the legacies of that Rodriguez uh, version was antonio bandera staying in and playing this role that um caroline you in your notes sort of wrote this is this is like antonio at the peak of his american leading man slash sex symbol phase this is yeah one of his most iconic roles i think
1: yeah and i feel like to some extent it's like i don't want to say downhill from here but like i think after here he kind of shifts into a different mode that i'm sure we'll talk about down down the line but yeah. like it is interesting that this is like i think the height that his real height and then also like right before he transitions into something else. But Mm -hmm. I think that... I watched some interview where he was on Jimmy Kimmel for like their Halloween special. So people come dressed in character and Jimmy Kimmel's dressed as a giant peanut. And Antonio is (laughs) a full-on Zorro. This was from like 20... This was like 2017. This was like Mm -hmm. fairly recently. Oh, wow. So it's clearly a character that people still like really associate him with. Like he has the whole... He has a whole <laughs> spin-off animated franchise that's just like we liked you so much as Zoro, please play Zoro as a cat in a children's franchise that will last <laughs> yes for it, decades.
0: Yeah, it is crazy to think that like so he goes on to play Puss in Boots in Shrek 2. In a that's that's a clever casting because Puss in Boots is a character that I mean I was familiar with, but I guess he was just like it was really like that was all there was to him. He's a cat and he wears boots. But then they're like what if Puss in Boots was Zorro. In fact, what if it was Antonio Banderas doing <laughs> Zorro? And that actually spins off. I mean, he's in a bunch of Shrek films, and then that actually spins off. There have been multiple Puss in Boots films. There will be another one this year. So, yeah, the kind of, like, half-life of Zorro definitely is, is, is a long one. You, you find the gravy train. You, you hitch up to it, and you keep it going, okay? <laughs> you said it, man. Um, yeah, something that I would say uh, Antonio has not had trouble doing in his life. Not, it, it, it doesn't seem yeah. that he's had a, a creatively limiting career, but he also has not had any trouble hitching up to the old gravy train. Well, it's, it's also hard that after The Mask of
2: Zorro, you have The Legend of Zorro, which is just so universally panned. Yes. Um, and I think one of the major call outs about it is that Catherine Zeta-Jones and Antonio Banderas share very little screen time, like relative to their relationship. And why? Why would you, why would you deprive us of that this opportunity? Is
1: this is the problem with all of these action sequels. They think the way to do it is to split up the couple and have them get back together. No, 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 my friends, the way to do it is the mummy returns, have them be a super hot married couple who are, have like, they're just incredible, have an incredible relationship. Yeah. And then they also have a kid. Like that's the only action franchise that I think has done the second movie romance, like continued it. Well, wow. Right.
0: Yeah. And I also- mean, sp- splitting them up, abominable decision as anyone who watches this first <laughs> film could tell you. Um, yeah I feel like I saw Legend of Zorro, but it's it just just basically sucks in every way, doesn't it?' Which we're not gonna, I, yeah
2: which which I think is that's when you have so much promise from this first movie, not just that like from a blockbuster standpoint, yeah, it was expensive, but it still more than doubled the overall budget in terms of how much it brought in. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah. You just, you would expect that there's going to be some follow through that is going to match it rather than just see it as an opportunity to make more revenue. Yeah. There's
1: a weird gap, too, because this one comes out in 98, and I don't think the sequel comes out to like 2005. Like I, there was something. Was it normally, it would just be a shorter time than wow. that. I was almost wondering if they were basically not going to do a sequel, and then Pirates of the Caribbean came out, and it was so successful, and they were, like, jumping ah, on that. Ah, that
0: is a plausible... Trend. That's and a plausible after, analysis. And it's
2: after Shrek 2.
0: Yeah. <laughs> is it really?
2: 2005. Wow. The question, though, is that's that's the production versus release date sure. quandary.
0: Huh. But so let's let's focus on Mask. Let's focus on... Uh, and the titles, I think, there's some people who cannot keep, you know, the legend, the mask, the mark of Zora, you know, but... John and Caroline, what are your personal relations with this movie? Yeah, so
2: again, I, I kind of mentioned earlier about where Antonio Banderas sat in like my mindset earlier on in 98. Mm-hmm. But also thinking around that time period. So GoldenEye had come out. That was probably one of the first PG-13 action movies that I really attached myself to. Mm-hmm. This movie then coming out and seeing it is it's truly a, a tour de force specifically from the stuntmen and yes and while i know some other people may say that the the fight scenes are egregious or 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 t- take too long whatever it might be wow, that's i think hurtful
0: that, to me i right that's my
2: <laughs> i had the exact same reaction because i was like if anything if i had ever gotten into any sort of equestrian sports it would have been because of this movie <laughs> And from from that point, I think that then Caroline, you 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 said it perfectly. The whole swashbuckler phase, like it was it was prime to come back. It's like, well, there's so many elements of movies that I feel get screwed up because of technology and the different advances. Like having cell phones ruins plot lines. Having guns ruins a lot of things. So Mm -hmm. in this movie, what is so what's what I really appreciate is how often people are reloading their guns, and the sword is clearly the superior implement to be battling with. And I think they start to reintroduce that in other movies too. They're like, Oh, not only are we creating a a medium in which, which, you know, people can't just use the, the most dangerous weapon. They can actually have this intimacy. Like they have to be face to face right next to each other. And there's a whole dynamic from that with this movie that I think set the tone of what I would expect for movies moving forward. So, yeah so yeah early like late 90s early 2000s i probably probably watched the vhs of this like a few dozen times and then i felt like i set it aside like i it was it was a a prized toy kind of toy story esque. Mm -hmm. like i'm gonna put you behind the other toys Mm -hmm. and then i think ned it was in like 2013 or so you had reached out and i found that text message you're like Mm -hmm. what about mask of Zoro. and i, I said, said what if what zorro if... i said dude what if zorro <laughs> and i said what if <laughs>
0: and then we to the races. so it's so you it... guys had like a movie night what yeah i think yeah i think that was some way of saying like what if i come over and we like you know make some food <laughs> and watch zorro and then you know drink some drinks and go out to the diner grill and all that what?
2: Which was, I think, that was a really also really important for me because this was twenty thirteen, twenty fourteen, which is mm-hmm. right as I had like left theater professionally, and I mm-hmm. felt I was somewhat removed from the social aspect of it, where your peers are also your friends and to some extent your family. And I really latched onto those opportunities to reconnect with with y'all, like uh, uh, Nick Gertensen, Right, that was a, that was a time period where he was living close by, and I got to spend time with him that had no relation to theater and create a whole new relationship as well. And so to have Mask of Zorro as this nostalgic piece that truly stands the test of time is that, like, what more could I ask for? The beers are just cherry on top. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I love the the emotional significance of it there. (laughs) I
2: I mean, come on, the Catherine Zeta-Jones also. That's the (laughs) other thing I should note. Catherine Zeta-Jones was a formative, like, oh, I am interested in this female persona. And then I mean,
1: is she maybe the most beautiful human being that's ever lived? Like I feel like there's a strong case there. to be made.
2: I, I think if we put if we put up a a, a Twitter poll, she would at least garner <laughs> like seventy five percent of the votes. Yeah.
0: And then you think, John, was that the last time you probably saw it before this viewing? probably. Pro- probably. Word. Caroline, how about you? What's your Zorro story?
1: Well, I'm coming in for sure now as like the sort of novice to Mm -hmm. this, I would say. I definitely knew of Zorro. Like, I feel like it was just around. I'm sure I saw parts of it. I'm like, it feels like a movie my family would have seen, although rewatching it, it wasn't like there were specific things that felt that familiar. I'm honestly wondering if maybe I only saw the sequel. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a movie that I have a lot of images from. Yeah. But I couldn't have really told you anything about it. And honestly, my main connection to it is just like knowing how much Ned loves this (laughs) movie, (laughs) which rewatching it, I was like, oh, yeah, it's basically like a swashbuckling Batman directed by someone that directed a James Bond movie. (laughs) Of course, Ned loves (laughs) (laughs) The Mask of Zorro. Um, So, yeah, I don't have a, didn't have a ton of like personal connection coming in other than knowing that you and now I know this about John as well, both like have this much stronger connection to it
0: yeah i definitely saw it as a child and i think it was like a sleepover movie for me as a little bit i mean i don't think i would have seen it in theaters because i would have been eight but i'm sure i saw it on vhs not long after i have a child childhood era vivid memory i think most distinctly of the the stunt where the kind of bumbling Corporal Armando Garcia like rides his horse into a log like a looney tune mm-hmm. and goes oh <laughs> so that was that was the part that I think stuck with me the most but I rediscovered it in college actually at a time when again I have a friend memory with this one where me and Louis Shermerhorn had made this plan to go out and see the I want to say 2011 really bad Three Musketeers movie with Matthew McFadyen and Logan Lerman and Yes Luke Evans. I can picture this. Yeah. Um, great cast, astoundingly bad movie. I, I did ultimately get to see it, but we were like, we were all set to go see this movie, and then it literally left theaters like a week and a half after coming out. <laughs> and we'd made this whole plan and we were like gonna get like Dixie Kitchen breakfast. I was like, what are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? And I like had the thing. I was like, dude, have you ever seen the Zorro movie? Like Mask of What if we watch that? So we watched that. With Takeout at my house. And I think we're both sort of like, oh my God, this movie is so <laughs> freaking fun. Uh, so I've watched it a few times since then. I definitely have memories of watching it up in John's sort of third floor apartment. The uh, attic. Yeah, the attic. And then I rewatched it last night. And I had that nerves, you know, when you go a number of years between viewings of a movie that you sort of are frequently proclaiming as one of your favorite movies. There's always this fear that, like, you're going to watch it be like, oh, you know, it's not so good. And frankly, I I had that a little bit with Batman Begins when we watched it for the podcast where I was like, this is good, but it's not quite as good as I remembered it. Mm -hmm. So I was afraid that I would have that experience with Mask of Zorro last night. And I think I can say now the short version is I did not have that experience. (laughs) (laughs) It did not diminish in my view. How was was everyone else's watch slash rewatch?
1: I also had a blast with it. i um, I think I wasn't expecting it to be quite as like funny as it is. Uh-huh. like obviously, I knew it would be in that like goofy swashbuckling mode. But there's like a playfulness, and even particularly from Antonio Banderas yes. that was like slightly more than I was expecting and that I found incredibly charming. Um, I remember something you said in our little women episode was that, even though you hadn't seen the 90s Little Women before, like that era of filmmaking feels nostalgic for you. Mm-hmm. And I definitely had that about this, just like how tactile everything is. Like the stunts are stunts that people did. And when they blew something up, they blew it up for real. Yeah. And everything feels, you know, so tactile and so lacking in that like CGI goop that covers so much modern action. Mm-hmm and yeah i just had a blast like watching what feels like this very like it's hearkening back to this 30s and 40s um swashbuckling stuff that totally. i also feel nostalgic for because i like grew up loving adventures of robin hood but then it's i'm also feeling nostalgic for the sort of 90s i don't know swashbuckling revival that happened as well so i had a super fun time watching this yeah did you what about you john did-
2: well, before before I tell you about it, were you a big, like, Errol Flynn fan growing mm-hmm. up then?
1: Certainly. It, the Adventures of Robin Hood with Errol Flynn was, like, I watched that so many times growing up. I loved that. that and then I was rules. also, it's <laughs> such a, God, we, okay, let's do an Errol Flynn. <laughs> <laughs> Could do. Series. Or just let's do a bonus episode about Adventures of Robin Hood. Perfect movie. Um, and then I was really big on Princess Bride and Pirates of the yes. Caribbean. I would mm-hmm. say those were my two swashbuckling. I guess mm-hmm. that's more eighties and two thousands. It's like on the you know the tail end of the the nineties run. But but coming to Zora was still. It was like yes, putting me in the Princess Bride space, putting me in the Pirates of the Caribbean mm-hmm. space, really fun.
2: Yeah, I I felt. It was like putting on like a like a, like a used glove from from your childhood. You're like, oh my gosh, this just it fits so perfectly. Um, and I can't say how appreciative I am of Netflix putting a 4K version up because I was thinking, oh, where like where am I gonna find? I'm gonna have to get like a bootleg copy or like some 480p, you know, because I'm snobby about that stuff. <laughs> and this did not disappoint. And I think it only added to the, what you're saying, Caroline, about how the special effects, every piece of it looks that much better. Like oh, it's yeah. I feel like it's really doing justice to the movie that I couldn't on my 10 inch TV, you know, tube TV that I grew up with. So I have actually watched it twice since we talked about it. Oh yeah. It I've watched
1: to, it twice <laughs> as well. And it had
2: <laughs> nothing to do with my anxiety about being on the show. It was generally <laughs> I like I said, so 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 Kate's out of town for like 10 days. Mm-hmm. And I, it was the first night and I sat down and I was like, okay, what am I, what am I going to get up to? And, you know, I may have indulged in certain things and substances <laughs> and thought like, well, I could, I could watch, you know, a TV show, I could catch up on like South Park or, or I could finally get caught up on Better Call Saul. And I was like, what if I just watched Mask of Zorro a second time? <laughs> because when I finished the first viewing, uh, especially when they get to blowing up the mine, uh-huh. <laughs> the thing that stood out to me is. So much of the visuals are stunning, and then the audio for explosions are like jungle cat noises. Yes, yeah, what's with that
0: wildcat growl? That <laughs> a
1: puma. Okay, I watch. I was watching behind the scenes <laughs> stuff, and Martin Campbell, the director, except he's British, so he's like puma <laughs> it's like oh, there's a puma sound in there like, what <laughs> are you talking about i don't know he was like yeah it just works it just works this, p- this puma they put in it just i love it but the
2: the it's the actual the opening of cutting the z uh-huh. but then how the z on fire comes towards you as if it is trying to emulate a 3d effect uh-huh. and then you have wildcat noises
0: it's like it's springing
2: on you it, it truly, it is like like Zorro has pounced and I am his prey. And it's yeah. true. I am Antonio Banderas' prey for the next two hours. <laughs> um, so, so especially watching it the second time, the things that I felt I appreciated even more than just the general nostalgia of it is how serious every single actor is about their role. Like nobody is tossing this aside as, oh, this is some BS blockbuster that I'm doing for a paycheck every single person is committed to it in a way that that makes those stakes seem reasonable and something that i oh i actually have an investment in each of these characters even if elena is not like fully fleshed out and she is more like this like like cryptographic individual of ooh what like i'm discovering my past not unlike anastasia just want to throw
1: Mm. (laughs) interesting
2: right romania it's sort of Uh, like did we tell her that right Uh. so (laughs) <laughs> yeah dude
0: No, oh, wow it is a little bit of an the secret princess um yeah i there it is interesting because those two observations that we've made so far about how like it is really playful and also like knows how to take its own stuff seriously those really do coexist i think it's that like the things they do that are kind of like corny or like very traditional they don't feel the need to like sort of like ironically undercut them. Mm-hmm. Like the sort of high melodrama that that starts this this sort of story, they never are like they they just don't like have to wink about that. They right. really lean into that. And yet it is sort of playfully executed. So it isn't like a like a miserable dramatic slog the whole time. I think mm-hmm. the thing that really like struck me this time and okay, so Caroline, what was one more time? It was it was a swashbuckling movie from a bond director that's like Batman right yes like Batman, mm-hmm. yeah. but the thing that it is that those other three things don't automatically carry with them is it's also like extremely romantic and I mean yes. in the sort of like not not just about like two people with a romantic relationship but in the sort of I don't know literary romanticism idea of being like it is about big passionate feelings and like strong emotions and dramatic moments and like huge images and it, it like i mean the way for me it's like the way that score like swells during action scenes uh, like the moment when in the in the prologue when Zorro diego de la vega zoro like rears up on his horse with his sword in the air i'm like gesturing it now the podcast can't hear that but he like does the it's like he goes up and silhouetted by the sun and the people are like, yeah, and the music is like, bum bum. It really is fully committed to that in a way that there are many action movies I love that do not have that sort of classic romantic feeling to them. And it is one of the things that I really cherish about this and, one. And
2: knowing that that Zorro was inspirational for for Batman, I mean, the same way mm-hmm. that Bernardo's character is essentially Alfred moving mm-hmm. forward. Yeah. That one of the major differences is the... Having having the alt having the alter ego versus the superhero, and having the superhero be praised to to have to have them be in the public eye as somebody that is meant to be mm-hmm. to be loved and to be yeah inspirational. there's like a
1: showman quality to it as well right yeah and out
0: there in front
2: of everybody. So I feel like each of those moments he is literally playing to the crowd, but yes. what he is also doing is providing the inspiration that then throughout the movie we discover anyone Zoro could be anyone. There's yeah. many faces, right? It's yeah. like you too could be a hero. You don't have to mm-hmm. have these
1: anyone can wear the mask, right? yeah. Soro yeah. mask. As, as
2: right. long as you have the money as a Spanish nobleman. <laughs> that might be kind of Batman-y in that sense.
0: But yeah, or at it, least it, a nobleman is, who can it fund is, you. It has got that Spider-Verse thing and that, that, like, you know, it the fundamental thing is not about having a secret fireplace, although that is a cool, <laughs> cool thing. Not um, enough fireplace was used in this movie. <laughs> yeah. It? I, I, it, it, and, and that actually feels to me like like one of those sort of, like, Ouroboro, like, Zorro inspires Batman but at that point I feel like Zorro is being inspired by Batman like I feel like this movie coming out post the 90s Batman's like it is a little more bat cavey it has there are many who would proudly wear the mask of Zorro which is also when you say hey that's the name of the show (laughs) um can I lay out
1: a little history of Zorro which I think I had not fully connected in my mind until digging into it here but it's a character it's one of those characters that's just been around forever. Obviously, similar to Robin Hood in some senses. The Scarlet um, but Pimper is now. starts yeah It starts as a 1919 yes. novel by an American pulp writer named Johnston McCulley, uh, who writes a book called The Curse of Capistrano, that is like where Zorro is introduced. Zorro is Spanish for fox, so the idea is that he's this Spanish uh, nobleman living in. California in a period when California was a territory of Mexico, essentially. That's the history we're in, which I also had a a whole tangent of looking into that. But you have this Batman figure where it's a a guy who pretends to be this very um, foppish nobleman and then at night goes out and is a, a hero of the people but it starts as a 1919 novel. It gets adapted into a movie called The Mark of Zorro starring Douglas Fairbanks. And then that just kind of kicks off this run of um, Macaulay writing more Zorro novels and short stories kind of throughout the rest of his life. And then the character being, you know, in different films and shorts and, and movies and all that stuff. I would say the biggest like modern reference point before the antonio banderas is the thing i quoted in my opening uh the 1950s tv show that was like a disney produced tv show where that gave us that theme song Mm -hmm. and then so this 90s movie is, is sort of figuring out how to like reintroduce a character to the public that a lot of people would be vaguely familiar with yeah um And I think it's very smart to play it earnestly, right? Like, it's the opposite of what Batman Begins does, where Batman Begins is like, let's kind of deconstruct this persona in a way. Mm -hmm. Zorro is just like, here's the dude you know. He's in the costume. Here's the earnest romanticism that Ned is describing. And we're just doing it without (laughs) undercutting it anyway.
0: And I think that's such a great fit for what this material is. Yes. And I also feel... I, I. I started to write a note and I was like, Antonio Banderas really understands the tone. And then I was like, I don't actually think he just understands the tone. I think he like creates the tone. I
1: mm-hmm. think that
0: really with a different actor in here, you would just have a much flatter movie because I, I I really feel like, I mean, it's possible that like this is coming through from Martin Campbell as well. I don't know. Um like how much he's pulling on this performance versus how much of it is, is, is coming sort of like from Antonio Banderas, but he really builds all right. of these nuances into all of the stages of Alejandro Murieta's journey, um, including the very, the very funny ones. He's got all of the like goofiness that is needed, but he also has the serious passion and he also has all of the like incredible suave charm he just really like I, d- I do not think we can overstate like how key he is to actually making that an interesting character whom you want to follow through the whole frankly very long runtime <laughs> of this movie it's like two it's like what is like 2 hours 20 minutes mm-hmm. i think um and i think that was a contemporary yeah. criticism is that it was overlong and i can't really I can't really, no. I can't, I can't disagree that I think it is overlong. But I also, if you like, had a gun to my head, I would have a hard time pointing to like what I would mm. cut. Maybe, maybe some of you would would have an easy answer to that. But, but um,
1: I kind of think okay to get my my little critique out of the way. I almost don't think it's too long. I think maybe it is slightly unbalanced. Um, I, I realize I just said like it only it does it fully traditional Zorro, Mm -hmm. but actually it does have a little bit of a device where we're getting Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins as like first generation Zorro, who then ends up training Antonio Banderas to become second generation Zorro. Mm -hmm. So I guess that is a bit of like a twist. But I think that the first half of the movie, maybe because Anthony Hopkins was a bigger star at the time, it almost like has a little too much of him, I think, and not enough Antonio Banderas in the beginning. I kind of wanted like less Anthony Hopkins backstory a million more training montages of Antonio <laughs> Banderas <laughs> learning how to be Zorro, and maybe a little bit more, more backstory for Antonio Banderas's Alejandro. Um, so I would rebalance that slightly, yeah. but I do think that's like more of like a little tweak than something that I think is fundamentally like wrong with the
2: movie. Well, and that the connection of uh, De la Vega, to Alejandro. I think is something from like a higher sense is really important to connect our generation, our generation being, you know, the millennials that grew up with this movie to Zorro Mm -hmm. as a whole. Like oftentimes I feel we, we pull from things. People say like, Oh, this is, you know, an interpolation from, uh, from Robin Hood of way back when, when in reality, it's like, well, this actually preceded that to some degree. And to actually pass this from generation to generation, it's one thing for me to say, "Let me show you a story from my childhood," and it's another to say, "Like here is the story for your childhood that connects mm-hmm. you to my history," even though like the actual history of this movie is a little, a little all over the place. I that for me, I, I genuinely did not realize until I was an adult that Zorro had, you know, had so many mm-hmm. previous iterations, and if anything, I felt like it. I wish it had done more, but I think that's just a personal request. The movie, how would hmm. I have shortened the movie? Uh absolutely nothing involving like <laughs> any like slap <laughs> gags re- re- regarding the horse, please keep every single uh-huh. all the physical comedy bits. Um I I felt like Catherine Zeta-Jones's like discovery of her father. There were certain scenes like even with the nanny in the market I recognize, I, like, I I understand the second viewing why that seems so important, but I wish they had married it a little bit more into mm. the general plot so that other people would notice it as well, rather than her living in her own world to experience this. Like, I would have liked to have seen the tension of, oh, Montero recognizes that somebody is telling her, and then maybe they remove the nanny, and you could have just inserted that into the
0: the big party a or something. Tightening up for uh, me, it's it's all of the mind yeah. stuff and the independent republic of California the sort of like evil plot because
1: we get a lot of that the
0: movie does such a good job of getting you to be like diego has a personal vendetta against rafael montero and alejandro has a personal vendetta Mm -hmm. against harrison love and then additionally they're like montero is like maneuvering to become like the presumably dictatorial president of his own country and that has to be stopped so that there's kind of more of a large-scale external stakes but that is where – that is, I think, the least fun part of the movie. And, and yeah, I'm like when – I, when I go back to watch the movie, I'm like, I can't wait to see the scene where they, like, chain up all the people in the mine. And there's, like, a lot of shots of people, like, rattling the doors and being like, don't kill us. You know, that's that's not something I'm, like, psyched to see. I'm psyched to see him <laughs> jump from – be standing on two horses and jump over <laughs> a log and <laughs> land back on the same horses. Yay. Um but maybe let's maybe let's break down the sort of different segments of the movie here mm-hmm. um and just share our sort of reactions so starting with the prologue which is the first like 20ish minutes it's of long. the movie it's, it's long for it's a prologue it's very long and yeah this is uh-huh. this is before uh Antonio Banderas makes his entrance into the film at all so this is this is the Diego de la Vega which is the original. This is the character in Curse this of Capistrano. Um, the legacy character of Zorro is the one that Anthony Hopkins is playing. So uh, so we have his whole background, including, you know, he has a sort of – he crosses paths with the young Marietta brothers. Uh, but if this is really all about, um, th- like, the personal drama between him and Stuart Wilson's Rafael Montero. And it ends with Montero kidnapping – basically throwing Diego de la Vega into jail to rot for the rest of his life and kidnapping uh, his infant child, Elena, and also um, results in the sort of accidental death of of uh, Elena's mother, Esperanza. Uh, any thoughts on this chapter of the film?
1: This is where I think it could be, to I, me, it could be a little shorter. Mm-hmm. Like I think I'm just so invested in the Antonio Banderas side once that comes around that I need a little bit less backstory for anthony hopkins but i don't think it's bad as it is i just think it could be a little shorter
2: i i guess for me when montero i felt like it was all stretched out and yet i still don't to this after the second rewatch i really don't understand how montero put the pieces together
1: that he was zorro
0: you know what yes i accept the hand waving there because maybe this should be a little shorter because what i understand is like i like that we come into this this part of the story in media res because this will not be our main story I do kind of like that it's like we're actually getting what kind of feels like the climax of the previous Zorro story Mm
2: -hmm. which is like
0: he's found him out yeah there is no explanation whatsoever to how he figures it out maybe he just kind of Bruce Wayne deduces it and is like why is that one guy always such a a dick (laughs) because the same thing does kind (laughs) of happen later on like like later on in the film Alejandro goes undercover as a lord and at least Harrison Love kind of like just figures out without any particular clues. He's like, I just feel like you are Zorro. Um, but, uh, or I feel like you are the Maria to, Maria to brother. But so I, I would say that like, certainly I am not watching Anthony Hopkins in the costume being like, I want more of this. I don't, I mean like I, w- when I'm watching him in the costume, I'm like, give me Antonio Banderas in the costume. But I do like, I do like the melodramatic stakes of this section and that it kind of ends with like this like high, horrible drama of like he's being carried away in a cart screaming as his house burns and his baby is like taken away. I also love the sword fight that Anthony Hopkins and Stuart Wilson have on the stairs. This is one great shot of of them. It's kind of looking up the stairs of – de la vega's hacienda and they're just doing a great sword fight on there and that's that's an early great like one-on-one duel um and i like the layer that it gives to montero as a villain where he has this you know him crying like no when when elena is shot by one of his underlings like i think that's worthwhile i think that's a worthwhile like dimension to give to your villain um Mm kind of keeps him interesting so he isn't just like you know I don't know, political power guy. He has this this like personal. Emotional. Yeah. Yeah. And I also love the scene in the um public square in the plaza where, you know, Zorro is like running in circles around all of these guards and the people are like cheering for him because that that scene does a lot of work for our understanding of of the uh like relationship of these people to Zorro. And I feel like the novel the original book and maybe some of the movies like do explore that a lot. This, like this sort of him as a public figure thing that you were talking about, John. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that it's funny to realize like, there's actually not that many times where Zorro is in front of a crowd in this movie, but we sort of have that idea of like, he's, they do a good job of setting up and shorthanding that he's this like mythic figure. Which recognizing that, this Zorro
2: will be the inspiration for Alejandro and as mm-hmm. a child the, he, he and his brother Joaquin are there waiting to see him which uh, we don't know if they've seen him before mm-hmm. or why this specific moment they know he's going to be there other than justice must prevail cuz these three random strangers are pulled off and to be executed yeah. so that's that's just I, the I kind like, of shit that Zorro loves to show up for yeah, it's like <laughs> come on like this is it's his calling card yeah <laughs> I, I felt the explanation or they had to show all that Zorro was because that would influence Alejandro later on. And then more specifically, once they, they act out, once they, they push it over, they, they push the statue from the, the top of the roof to, to take out the five, you know, riflemen mm-hmm. who have been poised there because this is all part of Montero's grander scheme to, to f- flush him out. Mm-hmm. That is the first step of anyone can be a hero. Because it is only after that point that the rest of the crowd begins to riot and push back. And you start, that's when they start throwing all of the fruit and vegetables. And then they start, you know, you've got a father elbowing somebody in the face. Things that they wouldn't otherwise do. I think we see that chain reaction of inspiration. Um, and then one thing, which I don't think this is intentional. I'm probably reading into this. But there's the point where, where uh, De La Vega is is fighting all of the people on top of, of the, what do we call it? Where where they're where they're with the where the 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 people are being gallows shot oh the gallows thank you and then he he lifts up the he lifts up the lever which then he drops through and then comes back up and then he sticks a guy in the butt (laughs) i connect that to later on where he asks alejandro do you know how to use that thing he says yes you take the body and you put it in the man (laughs) and it's like because that's what i saw you do right that's Mm -hmm. how this is supposed to be done again reading into it but i i just love to think oh he is he is trying to act out as if he is zorro yeah not understanding everything that goes behind all everything is so intentional and that that then leads into later on anthony hopkins with making the circle smaller i feel like that was good setup and it i agree i don't know how to shorten it but i understand and respect that it probably could have been a little bit brief
0: sure so we jump forward 20 years um And we see the Murieta brothers are now linked up with this very sort of memorable bit character named Three-Fingered Jack. uh, And they are sort of running cons with him. Um, And then we have sort of right away the tragic death of Joaquin Murieta, the older brother. And these are historical figures. I don't know if you all saw that in your research. But Joaquin Murieta was a real Mexican bandit. And he was actually killed by a person named Harry Love, who was an army commander, who actually did keep his head, like, preserved in a jar, which I was sort of, like, pleased to read because it explained one of the most, like, (laughs) what the fuck kind of a decision is this part of the movie. I'm like, why is this guy keeping somebody's head in a jar? Like, what is this, like, creepy ass, like, house of wax horror movie thing but it was historical so that was a weird thing to discover i
1: think it might be one of those sort of like robin Hoody things where like it's probably somewhat historical Mm -hmm. but also is like somewhat urban legendy or like yeah
0: yeah there's a little bit
1: of a myth as
2: well right because he's he was preserving the head as proof that he had killed him rather than essentially adorning his wine jug to drink from Mm -hmm. that
0: we'll get to that Drink for the brother wine, yeah. Uh, But we get this like grody, goofy Antonio Alejandro right in the beginning, rocking like a
1: full quarantine hair and beard situation. (laughs) Yes,
0: yeah. His first look is such a good look, and it is such. It is just like. I literally am so pleased that there is, like, a fashion transformation over the course of this movie that, like, he's really defined by this progression of outfits. That's something else that I really like in a movie. Um, But, like, yeah, the outfit and the hair that he has here and, like, definitely kind of some of his most, like, broad physical comedy happens in this general, like, chapter of the movie.
1: This was the biggest surprise of the movie to me because I think my... Cultural conception of Zoro is so much, you know, in the costume or in those dance floor scenes or the swashbuckling scenes. I, I don't know if I knew that there was this whole segment where he was just kind of like drunken con man, or not even drunk, drunken in depression later, but just sort of like this very roguish, not fully put together con man. Yeah. And I was so charmed by this. Like, he's so, this is where he's at his most playful and goofy. And I I was not realizing this movie had such a transformation for him. So this part was all like such a delight for me to discover. And it's, I think, Antonio Banderas playing a little bit against the sort of like suave archetype that we were saying he kind of mm-hmm. plays in his movies and even plays, you know, on talk shows and stuff. This is like goofy Looney Tunes. Yes. Kind of a world. He's totally and I befool. was very charmed by how like good he was at that and how funny he was in this whole section of the movie.
2: I, I still can't get over the introduction to that scene where they are still making their way to the camp into the encampment and three finger Jack does the whole drink from the water canteen, force them to sing a song, Mm -hmm. throw them the canteen. It's already emptied. I'm, I recognize they were probably close enough that they could have been seen, so they have to commit to the bit. But I just assume that's what it's like to work with method actors, where it's like. (laughs) Yeah, I was gonna say. Come on, like we're we're off stage, like nobody is watching. Can we? Can you not be a dick for like? It definitely
1: feels like Jack has overcommitted to what their
2: (laughs) scam is. (laughs) He's like, "Mm, I don't know. Would three fingered Jack, who's collecting the bounties, do that?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. it's, It's God. I can't remember where it is. If it's here. Or later in the bar, when Antonio Banderas does this, like, just this, w- this, like, waddly walk. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's like a the, Charlie Chaplin yeah. walk. Yeah. I don't know. He just, he's got this totally different physical mannerism. And you're right, Caroline, that it really is, like, no, he's not a suave dude. He's, like, a rough-and-tumble, like, desert bandit guy. Um,
1: it's like the part in The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoyo is kind of, like, drunken out of it and... Mm-hmm. And has to be kind of like, you know, splashed with water and like taken back to himself. That's like the whole energy that Antonio's bringing here. That I was just... I wanted this whole section to be longer. Like this was where I was like, yeah, I want to live in this world more than the Anthony
0: Hopkins world. Yeah, because when he meets... So <laughs> to fly quickly over the Anthony Hopkins. So Anthony Hopkins finds out that Montero is back. And does... They do I Am Spartacus. Uh, they do... <laughs> The Count of Monte Cristo like pretend to be dead so you can be carried out and buried in a shroud. That was uh, wild. <laughs> yeah. Uh and it also includes this crazy jump scare and maybe I wouldn't be surprised like another little like wildcat growl, but there's this like hand bursting from the from the ground like uh Jason. Yeah, they they, they fly through those genres really fast and then and then the heroes meet in a bar in a scene that I think is really great. Um Yeah, so his, like, drunk sword fighting in the bar is, like, really fantastic when he, when Antonio Medeiros is like, I'm gonna go kill Harrison Love now and Mm -hmm. Anthony Hopkins is, like, makes him fight him and sort of proves, like, you would have been killed immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, that man is, that man is trained to kill. You seem trained to drink. (laughs) Got him. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's, like, just that long sword fight physical comedy scene. It's like, you know, it's not long, long, but it's, like, it's one long take where you can see that it's just solid Antonio Banderas full-body comedy. And then when he says, I think he says, like, why would you, why why do you care so much? Why do you want to save my life? And uh, Anthony Hopkins says, like, he points at the little medallion and says, like, because you did the same for me. And then Antonio Banderas just has this great, like, look up at him when he, like, realizes that he's, like, talking to Zorro. And this this sets us up for the training montage that I think we agree is like (laughs) one of the highlights of the film.
1: It should have been three times as long
2: more, which also there's just the elements throughout it with the whips and the fire on the skin. It's just a very, very bondage esque
1: Mm. sexuality
2: to this. And and also Anthony Hopkins is wearing some sleek leather pants too, which which, (laughs) he's he's clearly an older man um, and he's not in Zorro shape anymore. But he 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 carries himself in such a way where you're like, he, you are just exuding this like animal magnetism that is hard to hard. I mean, I would probably do pushups over candles for you. <laughs> but
0: it's, Anthony Hopkins.
2: Should we talk about Anthony Hopkins for a second? Should can we, we can we please just spend a little just time like, talking about Anthony
0: Hopkins? Does it does he work in this movie? I can't fully decide. It's like a little <laughs> bit. Yes, a little bit. No.
1: I think he works. I think there is, I mean, I keep saying this. I think there's a little too much of Uh him as a character, like just in terms of how that character services the story. But I think he does work to give it a lot of like dignity and gravitas and this idea that
0: that even
1: though Zorro presents himself as this like righteous, impulsive hero, actually the key to being Zorro is you kind of have to detach from your emotions and like not his thing is like don't attack in anger like you kind of always have to be in control Mm -hmm. and i do think it's interesting i think his performance is good at getting the side that's like i am in control maybe it's Mm -hmm. a little less good at the like i'm letting go at the end and going crazy yeah but i think he i think he gives the prod the like movie some dignity Mm -hmm. that might be lacking if he wasn't there
2: i agree I would also add that he accentuates a lot of the comedy because of how he is the the um, like straight man, uh, the, the straight like the the plays it like straight faced foil to Antonio Banderas, which allows him to to sort of grow in the role. It's one of the the things that frustrates me the most about Wild Wild West, which is a movie that I was in love with. And then we it again. I was like, this is absolute <laughs> crap. This is a terrible movie. Oh, it's too bad to hear. <laughs> it's, it's, which is hard because Will Smith was another formative actor during yeah. these years. Yeah. And you compare what he did in Men in Black, which, which is because he had Tommy Lee Jones to be there, just deadpan the entire time while still being comedic. But the, the, the difference between those two energies just works so well to highlight each other mm. rather than to feel like they're competing. So I think that's if we had gotten somebody who was a little bit sillier or willing to be more playful in the role, I think we would have lost more of what Antonio Banderas did so well. And as you add, as you mentioned, he adds—I don't know—I don't know if it's gravitas, I don't know if it's uh, like legitimacy to mm-hmm. how serious this is. Like we, you know, they're, they're they're trying to take over this land from the people and they're stealing from Santana. Like it's all very serious, but you've also cracking and whips and
0: mm-hmm. I do think I like there it. is a little bit of dare I say semiotic a little legitimacy to Anthony Hopkins who is sort of known as a dramatic actor and I was interesting to read that he he took this project on because he wanted he was excited to do an action movie at least reportedly I mean mm-hmm. maybe that's just thing he said at a press junket maybe the the pay was right but <laughs> um but he does he does I think bring that sort of like association of seriousness to the to the role i do i just think that there are i think he's really great and he's got some scenes i just love um i I actually really like his scene in the stable with elena later on it's kind Me of his, like, saddest he just kind of is like melancholy as he like wants to tell her They talk he
1: grounds about- the sort of like lost daughter element of the story yes, really well and
0: that helps it helps like give this sort of like emotional like layer of like i don't know sort of high stakes tragedy in the background um he just is uh he just has every now and then little moments where I'm like, mm that beat. I saw Anthony Hopkins <laughs> there and I didn't it was I think when he when he's like, I have to give you something that you've never had before and and is like what is that? And he goes like, charm. And he does this weird like like saucy gesture that just doesn't
1: Yes, maybe he's not as effective at the when he's not being
0: a straight man exactly. Yeah, maybe maybe not, maybe not exactly. Um
1: my favorite part maybe in the whole movie is when they're like first going to do a little practice battle mm-hmm. and Antonio Banderas takes out a sword and does like all of this fancy stuff over his head and like all these little special moves mm-hmm. and like holds it out. And then Anthony Hopkins so casually just goes to knock his sword and it flies out of his hand. It is the most perfectly timed bit of comedy. And pl- like, I, I, tr- I just kept rewinding it because it was so, it would never stop being funny to me. Yeah. And I think that's a moment where Exactly like you're saying, John, the comedy works because Anthony Hopkins is not like I'm giving a goofy line delivery. It's just because he's playing it totally straight. Yeah. Antonio Banderas is just like frozen in confusion at what has happened. Yeah.
0: Yeah. There's there's a lot of laughs in the trading montage kind of all the way through it. Lots of good sight gags, lots of good little moments um his sort of strange like rule number 2 get to rule number 3 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it doesn't exactly make sense but, but the
1: other thing i love is that in their sort of like bat cave mm-hmm. they Which kind of exactly have this like yeah <laughs> this is a bat <laughs> like, cave. they have this like weird not even like a ropes course but they have these ropes that you just hop around <laughs> that are very specifically like hey just like if you're ever sort of in a mine situation with a lot of scaffolding where maybe you need to, like, jump around ropes, like, let's just train very specifically only for that situation. Because <laughs> it comes in handy at the end, but I was like, why is jumping around on taut ropes, like, really one of the, like, top three things you need to learn as Zoro? Well,
0: somewhere else in there, they must have, like, a set of parallel bars or uneven bars because that's also clearly a fundamental yeah. Zorro skill. <laughs>
2: Right, that I felt like they needed more gymnastics equipment versus this kind of like impromptu ninja warrior yeah.
0: or whatever. Um, so it's a great it's a great training montage it also is just so like just from a writing perspective of being like don't just have him train he's not just training because he wants to be great he's training so he can avenge his brother like that's just good action shit and you have that real thing like propelling it forward and then they get to like play around in there and you know have fun with their bits but you're like yes this is a training montage that has a real story behind it and i think that along with the sort of chemistry and physical comedy and just like physical impressiveness of the actors like makes that a great a great training montage Uh there's
1: a smart like screenplay thing happening here where it's you've got two Mm zorros so the movie very smartly gives them each a villain who are kind of interconnected with each other but it's like Anthony Hopkins is trying to avenge his stolen daughter by taking out this evil Don and Antonio Banderas is trying to avenge his brother by taking out this evil captain and sort of like giving them each some, so that at the end you can end up like intercutting the fight. I was like, Oh, that's very clever, mm-hmm. like blockbuster storytelling. Yes,
0: And then, and then come up with a horrible action movie way for them to die at the same time yeah. by crashing into <laughs> each other. But yeah, so they do, they do training montage. Um, there is a great, we meet the horse character who really cannot be undervalued. You forget about him when you just look at the top build cast, but the horse character <laughs> is great. This is one of the great horse characters and it's not like Maximus Entangled where they've animated him. It's just with funny shots and noises and like the right editing of a moment where the horse looks like it's giving him a like, what are you doing, dude? Look, um, that they create. Is it? is it called, is it called Tornado or is that just... I original. feel like
1: they never officially name it. They no. kind of it feels like a thing where they're going to do it in the sequel, which they probably yeah. don't cuz so many years right. later,
0: but He's
2: just a a a, ma- a matching Is, is that An- how he presents? And illusion. And Yeah. Yeah. So but he never names he, it cuz it's just like, well, you're Zorro just as just as Diego de la Vega passes on to Alejandro, Tornado is just a it's it's basically their persona yeah so mm-hmm. whichever horse is and the ho- i think that's what's so great is that he tries to find out what the horse's name is and he's like i guess the horse has no name it mm-hmm. just just responds to whistling
0: this <laughs> this is a moment where like you know i was just saying like make all the things like tie into the script but actually it's kind of great that there's no real reason they're just in the marketplace and they see a horse and all the like i want that horse i'm gonna break <laughs> in and steal that horse and that is how we get like his first time donning the mask, which is actually like a piece of fabric that he just gets from the horse and is like oh very it's a daredevil
1: sap. season one on Netflix. Yes, he just wraps mm. his
0: face in this thing. And this is this is the section I call raw Zorro. Because he's not really ready mm-hmm. to Zorro. But he's he's like half baked Zorro. And this leads to I think one of the great sort of like comedy action scenes in the movie. Uh where he goes into the barracks and fights the sort of like bumbling but like outnumbering him soldiers. Uh and the horse like destroys like a bunch of bunk beds, and uh, he shoots <laughs> off a cannon indoors, which is a great little sight gag. When he he does this little like look, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna shut the cannon. Ned, up.
1: as soon as that happened, I was like, I bet kid Ned loved this little cannon. Kid Ned, comedy college so much. age
0: Ned, thirty two year old Ned. <laughs> the co- the cannon bit is so funny because it's like it's it's this like. It is, again, this, like, this comic timing of, like, he fights this big dude and, like, hits him with a bunch of cannonballs, which is a bit that always makes me cringe, but, like, fine. That guy, like, turns around to the people, spits out his teeth, and faints. The gang of, like, baddies, like, follow him to the ground, and then their viewpoint, like, turns and they look back up, and it's Antonio Bandera sitting <laughs> on a cannon, and he, like, lifts up a torch like a like wily e. coyote lifting up a sign and then they all scream and then he lights the cannon and it goes off um yes it's a great it's a great comic it is bit. full looney tunes timing yes. like you're so
1: mm-hmm. right to say what it is it is there are moments where the movie just for as much as sometimes it's like a genuine grounded drama about anthony hopkins losing his daughter other times it's just full on the the time the, there's no logic to like how people are moving it is just looney tunes rules and that is equally great
0: mm-hmm.
2: I mean, especially when he's when Alejandro is basically hanging and and swinging from the chandelier, like the chandelier is what maybe max ten feet off the ground. <laughs> so you think about like his feet are well, it's got to be higher than that, but you assume like his feet are basically dangling underneath sure. <laughs> everybody. But you see everyone as he is swinging by, jump to try to grab the chandelier <laughs> and with <whiff> it entirely. <laughs> it's like I feel like there was a different folk. Fulcrum that you could have grabbed yeah. that would have been effective. But who cares, man? He's just tearing it through with a flourish left and right. Yeah. And the sword play? Mm-hmm. Oh my lord. Not just, because it's not just his technical ability, it's the way that he uses the space similar to how the horse uses the space mm-hmm. by tearing <laughs> down the support beams between all of the beds so they collapse on each other.
0: Extremely goofy. Like that's just, that's brilliant work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a super, super goofy scene. It also critically is when we meet is is when we've met the character of Elena, the grown up daughter of Don Diego de la Vega. But this is when who's now being raised as Montero's daughter. This is when she and Alejandro meet. They first like see each other as he's on the horse and he's like, There are dangerous men about. Yeah. Um let's talk about this relationship. What do we what do we think about this relationship and the character of Elena? I just love how
2: immediately after that moment, because they ha they share the back and forth, right? First he's he says, like, be careful, senorita. And then, you know, they're dangerous men about. It. And she says, Well, you let me know if you find one. Mm-hmm. And it's it's that that report. And then she is immediately so flush. she's like, I need to go confess about this. <laughs> she <laughs> just It is
1: really immediate because she's there in the church by the time he like goes to try
2: to hide in the church. <laughs> she's mid-confession. She's just waiting for father to get She back.
0: does so much work with her like heightened breathing to sell this. So I don't know. My feeling is, as you sort of alluded to, this is a, this is definitely, like, in the genre of, like, highly underwritten action female leads from a, like, character perspective. I think one of the reasons why it doesn't, I don't hate it quite as much is that I think Catherine Zeta-Jones essentially treats it as, like, a sort of, like, comedy performing opportunity because their relationship is like I mean it's like a love at first sight except it's really like an intense powerful horniness at first sight Mm
1: -hmm. where
0: it's like it's really based on this chemistry they have and this idea that like every time they see each other they're both sent into these like paroxysms of desire that they can like (laughs) barely contain where like and I also like that it's you know he's kind of like like across class lines but like they i just think she really sells the hell out of this like frankly kind of like i don't know it feels kind of like of a of an 18th century comedy like level of sort of like one note desire but i think Mm -hmm. she does a lot with it to make it Mm -hmm. entertaining
1: yeah i really like her i think she's she's like underwritten in the sense that it's definitely the third or maybe even fourth lead. Mm -hmm. But I actually think even if the part is small, like she has a lot of stuff going on in terms of figuring out Mm -hmm. where she came from and why she feels this connection to California and who her real father is. And like, I don't know. She feels fully formed, even if there's not a ton in the script Mm -hmm. for her. And there's a lot of sort of dignity and independence to her and this weird like spirit she has, that the idea is like she's kind of inherited it from her mom and I guess her her dad (laughs) being Zorro. Um, But she's like never really fit into this, you know, this like Spanish um, court world that she was raised in. And that, yeah, I don't know. I think it's a cool, like fun. This definitely would have been a character I would have really liked watching this as a kid. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, I think I would have in the way I really loved Evelyn and the mummy. Like, I think it's just like a cool... (sighs) Lead, and not, and like also still very feminine too, which mm-hmm. I think is like, can be nice and appealing. And I love their like sexy dance scene.
0: Yeah. Um, oh man. Yeah. Love the, da- yeah. Love the
2: dance scene. Um, oh, I can't wait till we get to Yeah. That well, Caroline, I feel like you are somebody who definitely would used to say like, I am a librarian.
1: <laughs> oh, 1000. Pr- I mean, yeah. <laughs> Obviously Elena is not on par with Evelyn from the mummy because Evelyn from the mummy is like a top tier, <laughs> a god tier character. But yes, oh, loved. I'm a librarian. Yes,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah. I think I think that it is a really a really strong performance, and then I think you're right that they do they do give her stuff to engage with. I think that like I go through this little cycle when I watch sort of like her scenes. You know, I'm sort of trained to be a little suspicious about this like intense, immediate desire she has for him. But I think that they do a really good job selling that relationship. Um, and you're right that he you know, he also she is also uh like pretty central to the she's sort of like the sort of central linchpin figure and not just in a passive way to the whole um sort of like twenty years earlier drama. I I just wanted to point out after
2: their interaction, he runs to the top of the stairs, moonlit with the silhouette mm-hmm. and he basically does the 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 cape flourish of Zorro. Mm-hmm. And I think he instills that mythos that she missed because she has supposedly lived in Spain her entire life. And mm. then, if anything, Montero would not let her know about Zorro or would not entertain those topics. So I wonder, has she known about Zorro before? Oh. Like Great And I question. feel I feel like that that adds to the the embers for the relationship. That for me, similar to what you said earlier, Ned, about like the hand waving about how does Montero know about it? I feel like for me. That establishes enough of the relationship that it's not, she doesn't think, oh, here's this man I'm in love with. She's just like, I am, whew, he is hot, and I like that. Yeah,
1: yeah I was going to say, it helps that they both, like, as actors, they're both so hot. Like, you really buy, <laughs> this is help. the opposite of that terrible moment in Captain America Civil War, where it's like, I guess Captain America should kiss a woman now, because that is <laughs> just a thing that men do, you know? And it's like the least sexy, sexy thing that's ever happened. This is like... Yeah, I really believe that if Antonio Panderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones entered a room, they'd be like, wow, we're both really hot people yeah. that should be together. <laughs> yeah. And, like, the, yeah, that feels that feels very mm-hmm. accurate to the situation. Yeah, so
0: you can really believe – it is kind of, like, a charmingly juvenile, like, like attraction that they have in this, and I think they really do a great job uh, of it. And I love the confession scene. I think that's so – the dialogue on that is really good, and him, oh. him, like – Sort of half-assing, not not really knowing exactly how to like inhabit have the priest role, but like he wants to keep talking to her. And I also love that that going up the stairs moment you talked about, John, because I was thinking that from his perspective, being like he's theoretically just trying to get somewhere, but he like he runs to the top of the stairs, then he like he wants to like make sure she sees him do his little thing. <laughs> right? He's like, wait, 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 one second. Yeah, it's very cute. Whoosh. Um. So he comes back and uh he gets whipped a bit he gets his mask whipped off Can
1: I do a quick sidebar about the whip Please Yes Apparently there was supposed to be like no use of there was no use of the whip written into the script but Anthony Hopkins stunt double just like happened to be a whip expert and Anthony Hopkins was like oh, I should know how to use a whip teach me and he just like independently learned how to use the whip and Martin Campbell the director said that there would be days he would just like hear a whip practicing and be like, get that, like get those people to stop doing that. And they're like, um, it's Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> and then once Anthony Hopkins became really good at it, they're like, well, I guess we'll just write this into the movie that he regularly
2: uses a whip. Which is is a great example of how you can sort of blend in an element of the movie without adding more time. Because we have to get yeah. through Alejandro explaining, look, like, look, it's, it's tornadoes, you know, spitting image. Mm-hmm. And Anthony Hopkins is like, what? Oh, one candle. <laughs>
0: Two candles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so they have a sort of a chastisement moment, which makes you think they're going to have the, like, servant versus master duel, which is then subverted because Anthony Hopkins pulls out a spoon, which had me wondering somehow for the first time, I'm like, how long has he been holding the spoon for that bit there? <laughs> but then they sort of... this. Here's a question of whether or not it would have been nice to see the next training montage. Yeah. Because we have the Pygmalion thing where somehow between that scene and the next, uh, Anthony Hopkins, like teaches the sort of like rough and tumble Alejandro Murray to how to be how to behave exactly like a lord and like maybe teaches him how to how to dance. Maybe that's the thing he knew already, right,
2: and teaches him about Spanish government mm-hmm. at the same time, like <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: okay. this is an element of the movie I did want to just bring up because I think this will be. Just an ongoing thread for our Antonio Banderas series, Mm -hmm. which is sort of like the conflation that happened in the 90s, where I think there was no understanding that Spain, the country, the European country, was different in any way from, like, Latin America. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: So there was a lot of, like, if you spoke Spanish, you could play any Latin American character. Yes. I just think that was the thing that happened a lot in the 90s and like certainly came up within his career. It's interesting because traditionally Zorro is like a a Spanish European character, right? That's what they're going for with the Hopkins Mm -hmm. thing. I think what they're aiming to do with the sort of next generation is like, oh, it's a Spanish character, but he's in Mexico. Let's bring in like a Latin American Mexican actor to... You know what I mean? Like a homegrown Zorro who is native to Mexico and he'll take on the thing, which is a lovely idea. But because I think in the 90s, it was just sort of like, well, Antonio Banderas speaks Spanish. So he's like
0: our native Mexican mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zorro. Yeah, probably but, people were like, you know, oh, he was in Desperado. That's about a Mexican dude. I guess he is a Mexican actor.
1: Right. He's like our yeah. Latin Zorro, yeah. our Hispanic Zorro. It's just like, a, I don't know. It is what it is. But it's just interesting because in interviews, like- Antonio himself is like, oh, it's such an honor to play this great Spanish character. But then a lot of the the other press is sort of like emphasizing that they filmed in Mexico uh-huh. and had a bunch of, you know, Mexican crew and production designers and stuff. It's just an interesting conflation of things that's happening. Yes.
0: Yes. It is. it is Yes. It is ethnically a little bit of a, a little bit of murky territory there. Um, yeah. But. Uh, well, and you've got Spaniards played by Welshmen. So. Yes. Yeah. Yes, Indeed. <laughs> but so they sort of elide their pygmalion montage and he just arrives with a new facial hair look um a t- smaller thinner mustache and a great blue coat and top hat just another great outfit i look like a butterfly yeah it's great it's really fun to see if, you know because it's like this feels like the bruce wayne part but they they For give sure. us they give us this whole thing where he's not he doesn't come from a bruce wayne background so it is fun to see him be like, "This doesn't make any sense," but then he like he can turn it on. And I just noticed this little, this great little bit where Alejandro, in disguise, he does this greeting that uh, Montero says, like, "I haven't seen that Spanish court thing in years." Kind of like, "Are you legit?" And uh, because, and I realize like that's because Diego would have taught him that because he wouldn't have been part of uh, Spanish oh. high society in years. But then it's a chance yeah. for Alejandro to sort of cleverly play it off and show like, "Yeah, I can just, I can just." Role with this, so he's a natural. See,
1: this is this is why I think that beginning part where he's like pulling the scam with his brother Mm -hmm. and Three Fingered Jack. I think we should have had a little more there to show Alejandro's like skill at scamming. Mm -hmm. Yeah, do you know what I mean? So that then that would have been more payoff for this section, which I agree is fantastic. Like I could have watched a whole movie just of Antonio Banderas like worming his way into this situation with rich people and knowing how to play each of Mm -hmm. them. Like just as he wants yeah, them. Yeah,
0: I hadn't tied it into the fact that he is a he's a con artist in the beginning, but yeah, it it does sort of make it make sense that this like actually does like use his expertise well. And you guys, you're all just making me want
2: to watch the director's cut. There has to be a version out there that's like three and a half hours <laughs> that's long that answers everything we need.
1: I did see one. There was definitely one cut scene where it's Elena has like a little sexy horse race with the evil um, captain oh. that kills the brother.
2: You cut so, horses from Ned's favorite movie. <laughs>
1: there was a whole extended is, horse scene because Catherine bullshit. Zeta-Jones was like, "I had to learn to ride horses. It was so overwhelming." And then it all got cut from the movie. Damn.
0: Sometimes it is like that. I know that there was a th- bit was sent to Anna's <laughs> army in the end. So yeah, there must, there's that material is out there.
1: Release the Campbell yeah, cut.
0: Yeah, release the Campbell cut. Um, so he goes undercover. There's an ex- extremely good dance scene, which is just like so good. I just, I just love that they worked that in. Like, you could have made this movie, then like, that is not essential to the plot. But the fact that they got it in, it just, mm-hmm. and, and, and it is, like, semi, semi-plot relevant. I just love that. That scene is fantastic. They look great together. And the purpose behind it is we need to prevent them from going off to their
2: rendezvous spot. How can we grab their attention? With lascivious dance. <laughs>
0: Yeah,
1: it is. So I mean, you're so right. It's like feeling the romance and the character level in that way. It's fueling the plot, but it's fueling that Alejandro is just like a smart dude yeah. who knows how to like uh-huh. grab their attention and then totally knows how to play the situation to be like oh, wow, your daughter was a real slut there. But uh, he's like, he kind of inspires the dance. Then when the dad comes over, he's like, oh, yeah, she's a real slut, but I'm going to be chill about it. So the dad's like, cool, you're now in my inner circle because you did not publicly slut shame my daughter. And then meanwhile, Catherine Zeta-Jones is like, what the fuck just happened? Yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> she's just-
1: And that leads into her character, which is like, sometimes this guy is really nice mm-hmm. to me and seems very charming. And sometimes he's horrible to me and I can't figure out why he f-
0: he's like seems like two people. And, and those are all the reasons why it makes sense to have it in. But it's, like, also sort of fundamentally, it just feels like one of those things that should be in here. Like, it just matches the vibes. It just enhances mm-hmm. the sort of, like, romantic, beautiful, like, of the era vibes. Um,
1: and it, sexy in a way that I think a lot of, like, modern blockbusters really struggle with at the moment.
0: Yeah.
2: I think... One of the things that I appreciate about it, too, is it is the first dance before they, before they spar with each other. Mm. And there is, a, there is a degree of consent behind it that I think mm-hmm. makes the whole romantic aspect of it a little bit more digestible for me. Mm-hmm. We'll get to the whole carving off of the clothes part later, but that they have this moment to engage with each other. And not only to engage, but to continue to ratchet up. And in each moment saying, like, he is asking, like, do I, essentially, Mm -hmm. do I have your permission to, to like, like, up the tempo? And she's like, well, as long as you're not afraid of getting sweaty. (laughs) It's like, hell yes. Like, (laughs) something that I think we need, especially from blockbuster, romantic action films is asking consent along the way. Mm -hmm. None of this James Bondian you know Sean Connery, when she asks for clothes and he hands her a pair of shoes, bullshit, like let's actually bring each other along and mm-hmm. then allow the partner to to push back and challenge in a way that builds on that flirtation and builds on the tension so that the catharsis is so much more enjoyable, Word.
1: yeah, it feels flirtatious as opposed to just like a guy seducing a girl mm-hmm. or it's not like what you're saying it's flirtatious in the back and forth, not like one person is the seducer and one person is the seducey yes, or whatever the
0: mutual flirtation that goes on through the whole thing is really key and especially
2: when you compare to true lies like that was the thing because sure. uh, I, I, especially like going back to it in the awards show that you guys mm-hmm. did i like i'd have more and more problems with that movie every time i think about it and that big element of it is you know arnold schwarzenegger with jamie Lee and curtis and there is the without the um I forget how, how you phrased it, Caroline, but but the power dynamics without like sub, the like subverting those power dynamics, mm-hmm. you miss out on so much. And I think having Elena carry like she is in a position of power. If she wanted to, she could probably have Alejandro kicked out of this party mm-hmm. and the whole ploy would be destroyed. Mm-hmm. But she's allowing him. And she's pushing back, and I'm like, ah, that's what I, I think that makes this scene so much more enjoyable to watch. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's a very good call. Yeah,
0: doing a lot of really good work in that whole time. I also enjoy that they, they work in that party scene to show that um, Harrison Love, the villain, the sort of secondary villain, is not just a like a homicidal bastard. He's also like an unpleasant bro. Uh, he just like has like unpleasant <laughs> guess- bro energy.
1: The, he's like a Nazi. Like that dude really freaked me out throughout yeah, he this movie. Sucks.
0: He sucks. He's a great. I mean, I, I think he's a great. He's a great villain. Yes. I think the villains in this movie are really solid action movie villains in 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 cool mm-hmm. ways. But yeah, he's like, he's a he's he's unpleasant. He's arrogant. He's like really freaking creepy. He's, yeah. I think it's a good good performance from Matt Letcher. I think mm-hmm. his name is. I do love that one line where where uh,
2: Alejandro interrupts their dance. And Captain Love says we were trying to dance. Says you were trying. She was succeeding. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh my god! <laughs> what a good, what a good dance. Relevant.
0: Oh, dance. speaking of crazy lies, right around, right before that, he steps up, at, right when they're like dancing, and they he kind of interrupts them. And she says, "Were you looking for something?" And he considers what he says. A sense of the miraculous in everyday life. <laughs> <Which> is just. <laughs> That is such a like a weird ballsy line to put in there. I don't know. I just yeah. never like never struck me before. But I'm like, that's just a good, that's just an extremely well. Funny that's line. that
1: romanticism you're talking yeah. about. Like mm-hmm. it is in a romantic context specifically, but just like that is a romantic. Idea to be like I'm looking for the miraculous in everyday life. Also, when he does like close-up magic to hand her a rose,
0: I think I'm Mm -hmm. well
1: documented as loving close-up magic (laughs) as we both are. And yeah, uh, yeah, ten out of ten again. How can you not fall in love?
0: Definitely, very easy to fall in love with. So yeah, then we go have a look at the uh, evil plan, which, as I mentioned, is kind of like I think it's it's a well constructed evil villain plan. It's probably the least like personally exciting part of the movie to Mm -hmm. me but the idea of like we're gonna take gold and we're gonna buy this land from santa Ana and uh, yeah any thoughts on that whole thing
1: i think there's maybe a little i think the parts of the movie that are about zorro being a defender of the common people Mm -hmm. feel slightly more incidental than i think the really well-drawn emotional conflicts we've talked about of like avenging your daughter and wife avenging your brother Mm -hmm. And so I think anytime it kind of goes to like, oh, this will affect the people of of California, it feels a little more vague or tacked on. Not bad, but like it's not—it's harder to get invested in it, as you're saying, Ned.
2: It, and I would add to this if that, if the introductory scenes when we first see Alejandro with Joaquin and and Three Finger Jack, if they extended that more, so we could get mm-hmm. more of Alejandro's connection to the people. I think that would match up more rather than feeling like, "Oh, I'm wearing the mantle of Zoro. I, I guess I'm also supposed to do this."
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I think yeah. to say, "Like I am, I am as invested in saving and, and protecting these people as I am in avenging my brother's mm-hmm. death." Yeah, because then, cause that adds to the whole Captain Love element of mm-hmm. how can I, you know, how can I, you know, uh, um, how can I do what needs to be done when all I feel is hate. It's like, well, yes, because you should be pulled to more than just Elena the love interest mm-hmm. And He doesn't really even know at the time that he's helping uh Diego de Vega to to get his vengeance as well.
0: He just knows that's part of yeah. it. Yeah. I do like that scene where he says where he asked that question. But uh but yeah, it is I I do think you're absolutely right, Caroline, that like the interpersonal melodrama and that sort of like development of those things seems to be what I think the movie is actually most invested in, and it does honor it includes the Zoro is a servant of the people dimension, but um maybe is like less uh less super interested in that in that stuff so um yeah we and we we go into sort of a I don't know what you would call this this chapter of the movie in screenwriting structural terms, but there's just some some character development scenes, elena. Has a scene with old Anthony Hopkins, um, which I think we mentioned is like a, I think, pretty good melancholy acting on his part and on hers. That's I like that scene. Uh, there's the head in a jar scene, drinking the drinking which, the brother wine. Which also <laughs> was, as we mentioned, is technically
2: historically accurate. And they're like, well, how can we just ham this up a bit? <laughs> let's drink wine out of it, which I, I mean, come on, there's... I would not have drinkin-
1: drunk in in no. the wine with my siblings' head in it. <laughs> no, I'm not committed enough to the scam. I, pass, I think
2: <laughs> I, I'm just trying to understand, like, lo- like logistically and medically, like <laughs> there
0: has that has to be problematic, right?
1: It can't be good for you. I don't
0: know what liquid could be keeping that head in its current condition, but also be uh, potable, <laughs> drinkable. <Yeah. laughs> Right.
1: I mean, look, people had shorter life expectancies in the 1800s. This is why they were always drinking
0: <laughs> head, wine. Wine. head wine or something. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely that scene freaked me out as a kid. So I definitely remembered it quite clearly. I think coming back to it, I was like, what is this doing here? I mean, I like a scene where a villain and a hero face off and are like, I know you and I'm going to fucking get you. And the hero's like, yeah, are you? Yeah, fuck off. You know, so <laughs> I enjoy that energy. And I do think, as I mentioned, the Harrison Love is a good villain um right. i don't quite know what to which that i seen, but
2: i i i do think one thing that we did jump over was mm-hmm. when they visit the mine as part of that whole scheme. right 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 so, yeah so
0: they, they they lay out the plan in the in the sort of like hacienda and then the next morning they're all taken in covered window carriages to look at the mine, and they see like oh he's using basically slave labor to uh to get all this gold which I guess I should add, because my
2: previous complaint was Alejandro doesn't have something. I wish we had more backstory to see his connection to people. Mm-hmm. I guess that is sort of the, the hero aspect of, mm-hmm. I must do this to to help save these people who have been enslaved. So I will give credit to the movie. Yeah. In regard, I just wish there was more of a personal element rather than a a duty. Mm-hmm. It's underbaked for sure.
1: You kind of just have to buy it based on a couple looks that he's now like
2: expanded his mission yeah. Well, and plus he has the whole scene with Three-Finger Jack being shot, which again is more of this is my my small circle, like the mm-hmm. people who are closest to me, which is more of what I got from his character is my parents were killed when I was young or they died when I was young. I was an orphan and I've had to look after myself and like, why does the individual care about the masses?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And I, I feel like it kind of interrupted that option to be like, oh, he sees this the wrongdoings and mm-hmm. that is why he is coming back. It's like, well no, he also really wants to kill Captain Love because he also killed his other mm-hmm. friend. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So we have that, we have those little drama scenes. We have Elena um reconnecting with her like nurse in the marketplace, mm-hmm. which is another it's a, I think it's a good Elena scene in terms of like her sort of like puzzling her way through this mystery of being, I, I feel like I'm connected to this place, but I'm confused, but what does that do to my worldview? Uh we go into the stealing the map Slash sexy sword fight slash horse chase action scene, which is kind of like, you know, I think a real. It's our first
1: proper Zoro. Say right? again, Antonio's. It's our first like proper Antonio Banderas as
0: Zoro. Yes, because and I th- I'm glad you sequence. brought that up because I forgot about this. Because he he last wears the fake mask, the like the the, the raw Zoro mask at 55 minutes in. I mean, it goes another 50 minutes until the 145 mark when he says alejandro says what do i do with all this hate and diego says you hide it with this and and then he drops the mask um which is i really think like i hadn't thought about that structurally how long they make you wait where there's it's no a long, Zorro it's a long time in the mask you know and this is this is a thing a thing that was discussed a lot when the sort of superhero movies started to get going again in the in the early thousands of like oh they go so long before you see batman as batman um, at least mm-hmm. that's, that was the point I made. Um, but it's really <laughs> cool here that they give you that they give you that suspense, so that when he goes back in there, you're like, "Fuck yes, Zoro is back! Let's go! He's the proper Zoro now." Um, yeah. yeah,
2: that's and Ned to your point, they've built more on his his garb because now he has his fantastic hat, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. then becomes then we get a little bit of the uh, what's the term? Uh, uh, uh prop play later on with oh Oh, yeah
0: yeah sure (laughs) yeah so
1: this is definitely like the act i feel like this is the action high point of the movie right it's like a sword fight into a sexy sword fight into a crazy horse chase
0: yes um all of which are great so i mean it's like the first one i love when he fights love and montero in the hallway it's just sort of a really good well choreographed again simple it's like it's just like without too many camera cuts just like a Actors in space doing really good sword choreography that is feels like authentic and how impressive it is, but also has that larger than life swashbuckling because he sword fights two guys at once. <laughs> this, this shot of him doing like, like left, right, left, right, left, right, left, right. It's so fun to see. And then a full like backspring or just like backflip. Yeah, flip. So it's just a little <laughs> flip right there. And then he goes out and fights a bunch of guards on a table, which is a great long shot. Um, really like. This is when I think you have, like, truly, like, super fun swashbuckling in the sense of, like, hero of the people. And then, yeah, so we get to the sexy sword fight in the stable, which is, I feel like, one of the most iconic scenes of the movie. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, what do we—thoughts? Sexy sword fight?
1: I mostly like it in principle. I think the part where she actually fully loses her clothes, it— I actually think my problem with it is that it gets two Looney Tunes Mm -hmm. in a moment where I don't want it to. Like, I think that them just having a sexy sword fight is enough. She cuts
0: his clothes Mm -hmm. at the shoulder, and then he cuts her clothes at the sort of seam of her dress, and Mm -hmm. yeah.
1: And then at the end, she's like fully naked, like covered with- I'm like, it's sexier when they're just fighting with their clothes on than when it's sort of like, ooh, (laughs) tee-hee-hee. Now she's like theoretically naked, but it's not something that would like stand out to me as being- awful or anything i think it just gets a little too heightened for its own good maybe
2: well it i agree and i think this is where it needed to end the beat needed to come earlier mm-hmm. um, because right he cuts off her clothes and you would assume that he'd be how the scene if i had written the scene he would have done the cuts taken the hat and left
0: mm. run away and the
2: very last beat would just be the clothes drop because then yeah, it's not about yeah, him seeing that's her a naked good call. He was simply like look at my tact and skill and I have things that I need to go do to kind of just like the catharsis for the scene. But then it brings in Love and Montero who are like, Elena, what are you doing? Why don't you have any clothes on? Why are you in a stable? And she's like, Zorro, he was here. And he was
0: vigorous. It was like, yeah, we got that. We saw yeah. that. You are telling <laughs> us. Don't tell, just show. That's a very it good It does call. a little remind me, I think Caroline, you had a tidbit on on the fish called Wanda about like, the scene where John Cleese kind of walks naked into into like a group full of other people had originally been a scene mm-hmm. of Jamie Lee Curtis walking naked into a group full of people. And and they sort of agreed then that that was something that had actually been kind of like done enough already. And it would be funnier if they switched it. And this kind of does that at the end. But up to that, it is an awesomely erotically charged fight scene. I really oh think. Yeah, I think they crazy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they really, they really do just just commit so much to, like, a sword fight that feels like this, like, extremely high-key foreplay. So, yeah, that mm-hmm. that is, I think, a really a, a great feat to pull off. That is, again, all about acting. That is, that is a scene I think you could point to as being like, yeah, the chemistry is off the charts there. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a little that broad comedy the foreplay. way they do that, but it's really, it works.
1: Well, and I hadn't thought about this till what you were talking about, John, but like she has the dance with Alejandro and then she has the sword fight with Zorro Mm -hmm. and these are like the two personas and she's sort of having the same interaction with both, but like in a way that's more fitting. You dance with the fancy courtier, Mm -hmm. and you fight with the masked vigilante, but they are like almost the exact same energy. And that's such a smart parallel for the movie to draw.
0: And and mutually... I think we are responding to all the scenes we like where they are sort of mutually flirty and you Mm -hmm. get that for a lot of this scene.
1: I did sort of have a problem with the idea that like her dad would have given her sword fighting lessons since she was four. Like that's something your dad does. If your dad is Zorro, not if your dad is like a Spanish nobleman who's trying to make you a proper lady,
2: but whatever, it's worth it for the fun of the scene. Well, and so something that I appreciate starting back earlier earlier, once Alejandro confronts Captain Love into this scene is how everyone commits to the etiquette of the sword play, right? Mm-hmm. Like Captain Love, mm-hmm. you see he's got his rigid pose with his arm back at, you know, at his side at the mm-hmm. angle as he's fighting, even as he's angrily like hacking and slashing. Then when you have this scene between Alejandro and Elena, she is she's confronting him and saying give me back the thing that you stole and i have no idea what it is and i'm also skeptical of my father because of strange nanny in the street however (laughs) there there is a civil way to deal with this and it happens to involve deadly sword fighting and i think that's what i love so much about it is because they're engaging each other in a way where the stakes are so high but there is a Civility is not the right word to use for this, but there's there's like an agreement being made mm-hmm. that we are both participants in it. And that's the like, that is the underpinning of the consent that I find so necessary. And I wish, and why the, I feel that the the cutting of the clothes cheapens that moment because it's like, here are these two, they're engaged in combat, but even the kisses, they don't mm-hmm. feel, like clearly he is stealing the kiss from her, but he steals the second kiss after coming close. And that's where I'm like, you can see it's not him coming at her and pulling so much as them coming together. Mm-hmm. And that's where you have all this tension. And it's like, you should have just let that happen and then ro-
0: rode off in the sunset. But you didn't. It was a shot where so they it. have like, he tries to like dismiss her and then they like fight a teeny bit. And then they kind of like look at each other and like, they like put their swords down for a second and he takes off his hat and she takes off her dressing. i like, that is so funny and good.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, if we're going to do this, we're going to do yeah.
0: it right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So. Then, uh, some insane shit happens on horses.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. This, yeah, this has to be your favorite. I, I don't know. I
0: I really love this scene. It's, it's so hard for me to pick a favorite fight scene. I do actually want to know like what everyone's favorite fight scene is. This is a serious, I mean, I love the sexy fight. I love that one at the beginning, but yeah. So like, I mean, to, to, to jump to the very finale, literally he is standing like skiing on two different horses and the horses are running at a log that is parallel to the ground and he jumps up over the log and lands back on the horses and a human being did this like maybe yeah, with maybe with it. wires but nevertheless even
1: so and there's so much trick riding throughout. It's like, oh my
0: god, tons. And it's
1: all like you're saying, it's like long shot. I mean, obviously there's some close-ups where it's just whatever the actor is writing something mm-hmm. fake, but there are long shots where you're just watching a stunt man like be on a saddle, then flip himself around, and then jump over to another horse. Yes. And it's like the kind of stuff that obviously they used to do all the time in old Hollywood. But like, I was like, I didn't even know people still knew how to do yeah. this. Like that this is a yeah. skill that someone involved in movie making still has. Where my gimmick is just like doing trick horseback riding for films like it is so old school in the best way
0: yeah this this stunt where like somebody like slides out of the saddle and their feet like touch the ground which allows them to like spring back up and land backwards in the saddle so that he can punch a guy as he rides by him (laughs) that's inspired it's crazy crazy so
2: the the, what i realized again on the second rewatch is this tornado Mm 2.0 despite the involvement in all these scenes there is never a scene where the two of them both zorro <laughs> and his horse work together oh, yeah. actively they are they are like co-fighting yeah but they're never up like a an engaged partnership and i find that again this goes back to like using the entire using the environment to your advantage uh, what do i have i don't have my horse because my horse is run right away <laughs> but everybody's tracking the horse. And so what I have are five other horses with bad guys that need to be dispatched. Yes. And I'm going to do it in, again, all of the flourishes available. Like, did he need to do a back handspring? Could he not punch
0: the person (laughs) facing forward? Yeah, he could have. But Zorro. Yeah. Zorro has, he's got some panache. Extremely wonderful scene. Probably like my last, probably like the rest of the movie ties up the plot that it has set in place well. With maybe just slightly less, like, thrill and fun than that. So I think the next thing that happens is Diego goes back to sort of corner Montero and tell Elena the truth. Um, Sort of just, like, the delivery on that long plot line. I think my favorite part of that, actually, is a a Montero villain moment when they're in this sort of, like, standoff and... uh, Captain Love draws his gun in a way that feels like it is going to play out in the same way that Elena's mother Esperanza was accidentally shot in the first scene. And Mm -hmm. like the timing of it when Montero like catches it earlier in a way where you can tell he like still carries this moment and like tackles the gun out of the way and screams. No, I think that's, I just think it's really smart to put that layer of like tragedy in the villain's life. And, you know, he's still Mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a horrible rotten bastard, but it just makes him an interesting character. hmm
1: Yeah, I like how truthfully they play that if you raise someone as your daughter and so you grew up with somebody as your father, like, finding out they're not, they were they aren't biologically connected to you is not gonna all of a sudden, like, erase the yeah. feelings you have or whatever. I think they're pretty truthful to that throughout, and I appreciate yeah. that.
2: There's, there's also this moment uh, where... Uh, Diego mentions you know I've been dreaming about this moment and Montero responds like you know I haven't thought of you in years and it it fine it's a fine point on Diego's earlier line back before the party that like a nobleman says one thing and thinks another mm-hmm. and this is Montero really just like clinching that moment yeah. to say like because you know he has been haunted that's by true Zorro. he's 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 taken the long <laughs> boat, and he's like I have to find this man that I have imprisoned which you would yeah. assume if If you imprison somebody for twenty years, like somebody would have a record. I thought about that too. Terrible paperwork. (laughs) Not (laughs) in this kind of prison, but right. And and what I what I don't quite get is the end game for Diego in that confrontation. Like, what matters more that Elena knows, or that he has that he can leave with Elena? Mm -hmm. Little half baked. Kind of hard to say. Anyways, he. He once again hands his, you know, hands his sword off and says, "Okay," and is taken quite gently to be yeah. imprisoned. I was <laughs> like, I f- the man was Zorro. Like, it's not like he just completely lost his sword. <laughs> well, it, it's
0: uh, taken quite gently until he gets thrown down the steps in some this like big, you know, step throw. But then that th- th- that that beat sort of resolves quickly when Elena comes in and frees him, which is like they don't really have their connection moment yet, but we see that she has chosen to believe him. This all kind of fast tracks us to a big showdown at the mine, a big two parallel fight. I mean, there's some there's a lot of like fighting off the goons and running around the scaffolding. And it does kind of climax with, as you mentioned, Caroline, two parallel sword fights where each of the Zoros gets to fight their longtime arch nemesis.
1: I think you're right with what you said earlier, that it is good. Like, it's all really good, but it's not as much of a high point as that sort of like Zorro break in. Yeah slash horse chase that we had earlier. Like, it's doing its job. It's not quite the high point of the movie,
2: but I think the movie's smart to not drag it out for too long, mostly. My, my weird thing about fight scenes and how they're heightened, when they are out in broad daylight, I feel like it is it is more challenging to keep to keep me as invested as when I mm. have, like, the, the, the shroud of darkness as a way to play around. Because otherwise, how to... The way that he is, that that uh, Alejandro is sort of keeping himself hidden is by doing all of his acrobatics around the, mm-hmm. the the wood beams. But otherwise, it seems like everything is so out in the open, which is where they bring the most. They bring back the thing I said was so important: the guns are ineffective tools, ineffective mm-hmm. means to dispatch mm-hmm. Zorro. We're gonna have <laughs> to go with swords. It's like, okay, I guess I guess we can play with it, but. The the one thing that I just really... The, I got really annoyed with, and I think this is a miswriting of Elena. Earlier on, when Captain Love is leaving with his goons, and then they see Zoro and shoot, and then he's like, you stay here, I'm going to go back. He recognizes, well, if I'm going to stay here, I don't want to die, so I should probably cut the cable that is otherwise... the, 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 um, the fuse mm-hmm. to the bombs. And then afterwards, when Elena is told, go you know save the prisoners she runs right by it and doesn't do anything with it and i'm like i I really wish i feel like somebody who has been trained in sword play i feel like that is a a a level of of martial uh i don't know training that somebody would have said like by the way how fuses work you know john her (laughs) adrenaline
0: levels are through the roof at that moment she's just she's just in a she's in a panic understandably. <laughs> no, it's just it's, rule it of cool. It's of... because they want to have that big, big, big fucking explosion at the end, and that's really the only reason that that... God bless yeah. him. It's in the budget. Yeah. Yeah, something's got to blow yeah, they, up in w- this. The, when... the, the one
2: tieback they did really well was with Captain Love earlier, the, the whole idea of don't fight when you're mm-hmm. angry, and mm-hmm. you can see that he is fighting in a rage. So I did like they brought that back, and eventually it was his downfall. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I... Think... They,
1: The climax kind of reflects, like, I guess how I feel about the movie as a whole. Like, I really, really like this movie. I don't know if it would necessarily be in my, like, personal top five swashbuckling movies. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's really, really good. Maybe it's, like, 10% off from being great, which is kind of how I feel about the climax. But, like, given how infrequently we get these kind of movies, it's so much easier for me to focus on all of the like really great things it does yeah. well then maybe the sort of like little nuances it could have gotten Word. better.
0: Um okay I, I I mentioned this earlier. I do want to know what's if you had to pick a favorite scene. Should it be favorite scenes or favorite fight scenes?
2: I don't know, but mine's the horses. Okay, great. Way.
0: The <laughs> horse chase scene I like
2: couldn't get over. John, um I will say the I ha- it has to be the fight between Catherine Zeta Jones mm-hmm. and Antonio mm-hmm. Banderas because I think for me that's when I think romance, I think like, oh, how can you be so connected with an individual and keep the stakes so high? And I think that's – yeah, it's got to be that.
0: Up to the point
2: where she gets her clothes I think – Then I'm like
0: eh. – I think I'll go, as I mentioned, with Zoro fights – Montero and Captain Love in the hallway. It's kind of a small little set piece in the grand scheme of things, but just like two snobby aristocratic guys are just getting angrier and angrier as like the charming hero like keeps them both at bay. Dude, that's just that's just as chef's kiss to me. I love that. So, yeah. Um
2: my favorite horse scene though is when he is trying to call Tornado 2.0 mm-hmm. and using all the different names and then like you said I'll find
0: another horse. Yeah. <laughs> great. They're just, they're just horse comedy, man. It's just top notch.
1: And the Antonio comedy. Yes. Like, what a great way to start this series. Like, this is really such a great, fully faceted action hero performance from him that feels so old school in the swashbuckling sense in a like charlie chaplin sense but also is genuinely sexy like i think you were so right ned when you said earlier that there are few people who could have played this as well as he does and it's one of those things that looks easier i think in practice than it probably was to actually Mm -hmm. do yeah i yeah just like a great way to start i think the
0: number of things that he gets to do tonally the sort of range the range of scenes and acting moments that he gets to do in what does still feel like a consistent character and all of that on top of how much just raw virtuosity you get in here in terms of sword fighting skill and dancing skill and horseback riding skill and all those things. It is absolutely like when you bring those mechanical things in, which they they are performance, you know, it, it, it is, it makes it a performance that I just so, so deeply Look up to uh and just love to revisit time and time again, so yeah, it was very fun to start with that. Yeah. I feel like I could just like go back and pull up the video and just remind myself of a hundred more moments that I enjoy discussing, <laughs> but are there any other any other thoughts or reactions or feelings or just emotions or like guttural noises you have in response to this movie <laughs> that anyone wants to share
1: uh one. This baby, this uh, movie does not have a good baby sleep safe. Uh, <laughs> the 1800s did not know how to safely put babies in cribs, so don't take your uh, advice from this movie that was really stressing me out. But I, my actual point is that there's a really fun behind the scenes, like 45 minute documentary on YouTube that I would recommend people that love Mask of Zorro go check out because yeah. it just shows the extent of like. What they were exploding and how they were doing the sword fights and just all that really fun behind the scenes stuff that makes a really great addition to the movie. You gotta send me that.
0: I gotta watch that now.
1: I will do so, you and I will do. also point out which little segment I think we should gif and put it on our Twitter account because it is the
2: coolest thing I've ever seen Antonio Banderas do. <laughs> Hell yeah!
0: Ooh, I'm looking forward to that. That is exciting, John. Any last last bits?
2: Um, I think anyone who I, I know it did not, you know, create in any way, shape, or form, the swashbuckler genre. But I think all fans of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise owe a great debt of gratitude to this movie because mm-hmm. I think it brought it back into the limelight in a way of saying, this can make you hundreds of millions of dollars and it's important to play out all the different relationships throughout it because although I'm not here to talk about Pirates of the Caribbean. But, <laughs> we, but, we, I, could. I, I, but we could. But we could. <laughs> But I think for the same reason, th- I actually saw this movie before I was introduced to Princess Bride. And mm-hmm. I think that I appreciated it that much more because Inigo Montoya's character, I could I could ground it in something I was familiar with. And then now if you ask me which of these, those two movies were my favorite, I'd be like, well, they're completely different movies. But Princess Bride holds, there's a fondness in my heart because it leans so directly towards that romanticism mm-hmm. rather than mm-hmm. that being a key element yeah. of it.
1: That is a very good call that in this sort of what people have nostalgia for in sort of recent swashbuckling movies, I actually do think *Mask of Zorro* gets a little bit lost between *Princess Bride* and *Pirates of the Caribbean*. And like, I'm so glad we could have the, truly the most detailed conversation about this movie that I like feel like has ever been recorded <laughs> because I think it is it is worthy of being celebrated in that way. And I think it's lovely that both of you, are, in particular, can be such champions of like a great modern swashbuckler that is unfairly a little bit lost to history and should be like remembered for how great it was and i think you're really right john how influential it probably was on that pirates franchise
0: and i am a huge curse of the black pearl fan but i do think it is it is the fact that that is such a significant part of the cultural zeitgeist and zoro is less of one that i find myself always championing this movie Mm -hmm. to say nothing of the fact that i just love this like sexy music and like the horseback riding and all that business and all the particulars of this, that, that, uh, that really bring me back to it where I think like, yeah, if I'm thinking like my favorite swashbuckling movie, I think this is, this has got to be it. Yeah. Surprising. We we didn't
2: do nearly enough service to
0: Tim Horner's score. Oh yeah. Fantastic. That score score. fucking kicks ass. And I used to just like listen to it. (laughs) Yeah. It's great. Um, so for all of these reasons that we mentioned, I wanted to start our Antonio Banderas series with this because I thought it was such a great, like, sort of career-defining, like, showcase for all of the things he can do. But for our next episode, we are going to be going back in time to look at one of the first really significant chapters of his career, which, as we mentioned, was his collaborations in the 1980s with Spanish director Pedro Almodovar. They made five movies together in that time when they were both starting their careers, and it was a very tough decision which to focus on. And even in this moment, I'm sort of second guessing it, but I'm going to commit to sticking with my instincts and say that next episode, we are going to be discussing 1988's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, um, a movie that I, that was made a very strong impression on me. And I'm really looking forward to that. But before we leave you with that, we want to say thank you so much, John, for joining us for two Zorro packed hours. Um, this is so much fun. I'm glad you feel it. We'll like... have
2: you back for a full on rom com at some point as well. I that's uh, now before you joined Caroline, I was t- talking about how i had a, I had wanted to be at to be invited onto this, and I had thought it would have been in one of the rom com movies because I never shut up about mm-hmm. how much I love romantic <laughs> comedies. But this has been a true pleasure. I'm I'm glad I had a chance to revisit this, and also just to hang out with you too. Because one of the things I love so much about your podcast is. While I don't get to see either of you as much as I want to and nearly as much as I would probably deserve it's it, it when I'm on the train going to work, it's kind of like hanging out with two Aww. friends Aww. To be really
1: important <laughs> that's so Thanks nice buddy.
2: Did you want to pr- to
1: promote any of your social medias or anything? I don't know how you're living your life as a i
2: no i have I have no social media I have no podcast um so if you want to reach me uh i guess. I guess I I have no idea. I don't know. Ask Ned and Caroline <laughs> to give you my number. If yeah, tweeted us. I
1: yeah. will pass it on to John.
2: Yeah. No. Just keep keep listening to roll calling and share with more of your friends and engage with them on Twitter. So I'm not I'm not the person who seems like they're responding too quickly to the posts because <laughs> that's always my fear. I'm like, how many seconds since he posted this? I sh- I should wait. I am terminally. Can already. never
0: respond too quickly i was john.
1: gonna say you can never respond too quickly
0: roll calling is produced and recorded by us ned baker and caroline Cedar. our theme music was created by patrick buddy and our logo was designed by nick wanserski you can follow us on twitter at roll calling and email us at rollcalling@gmail.com. at gmail.com that's roll r o l e we'll be back in two weeks with women on the verge of a nervous breakdown until then
2: i'm john harrison I'll never surrender, but I may scream.